Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. We live with numbers, don't we, every single day. Uh, and there's all sorts of different ways to crunch the numbers, whether it's, uh, you know, 84 new cases, three deaths pre- uh, announced yesterday, means that the mirror leads with a story like the virus is killing again. Uh, Dublin is a big problem. There are those wondering why is it that areas in Kildare and places like that went into a form of lockdown, but yet Dublin hasn't yet. Um, Many, many cases now are spreading in the home. And that's why they're saying that the capital is the new fight uh, and the possibility of some restrictions there, perhaps in the days ahead. But 54 different schools now have been hit by a case of coronavirus. Um, Kids catching the virus. Uh, Docs now are calling on, uh, are are, are issuing a call to action, if you like. (laughs) Meanwhile, nurses and frontline workers are talking in the echo this morning uh, where the health service in Cork wouldn't be able to cope with the surge in COVID-19 cases on top of the current demand levels that they have and also the increased demands within our hospital scenarios and settings uh, as we head into the winter. That's why they talk of a perfect storm. Uh, kids are more at risk now in the family home than anywhere at all. Apparently much more at risk in the home than, say, in schools, weirdly enough. And unfortunately, the number of over 75s who are testing positive has now trebled. So that's what I mean when I say that we're crunching uh, the numbers. Problem areas now, Dublin, Limerick uh, and Kildare primarily, those three. Cork doing um, exceptionally well in spite of everything. Maybe we're adhering to the guidelines an awful lot more and keeping our distance and washing and doing all of the right things and sanitizing or what have you. But jobs also uh, are an issue going forward. And Pat Dawson, who's the CEO of the Irish Travel Agents Association, is in the examiner this morning saying, at this stage now, the government needs to help directly with funding and money, with cash, to protect the three and a half thousand jobs within the Irish travel industry. Uh, because I, I would imagine they're actually doing very little. Not that they don't want to be doing work, it's just that they have very little to do. Uh, so they need extra forms of wage subsidies and grants to help them get through this until we get out the other side and people start, whenever that will be, to travel overseas and also to travel into Ireland. Meanwhile, of course, where you can go for a pint, and you heard in the news there, you can wet the baby's head, but you can't see the baby's head. There's a story making many of the papers, to see it in the mail this morning, of her mother who suffered an IVF miscarriage lay in agony behind a hospital curtain because of a bonkers ban on partners attending maternity hospitals. It was claimed yesterday, there's no point blaming those in the hospitals for this um, because this is policy. And, of course, we dealt with it on the air earlier in the week before other issues took over and indeed from time to time with regards to restrictions in the CUMH. You would think that if kids are back to school and all of the pubs are reopening and stuff like that, that a partner can go in for a longer period of time uh, during childbirth or even into scans and things like that. The Debenhams workers will come out of Debenhams Patrick Street today. They had their sit-in protest and we spoke with them on the air yesterday morning. Echo has the story on it today. It will end at lunchtime, half past 12. The eight former staff members of the company uh, from across the stores like Patrick Street, Maham Point and also Tralee, incidentally, they finished their sit-in at half past 12 today and that started in the early hours of Saturday morning. There are other kind of supermarkety related stories. The examiner is saying that Tesco, M&S as well, will reopen in the Douglas uh, shopping centre. The two anchor tenants of the shopping centre 
which was devastated by fire a year ago, they're going to reopen and go back in in the coming weeks, apparently. Then the whole centre then, of course, will be open in early November. So that's an own English story making the examiner today. The state of the planet uh, dominates some of the red tops today where they talk of mass extinction as the worldwide population um, of various species um, is just reducing and reducing as the decades go by. Like the world's animal population has plunged by over two-thirds, nearly 70% of them gone, in the last 50 years. I mean, you'd have to sit down in a quiet room just to digest those numbers. In 50 years, 70% gone? Um, Like, that's got to be our responsibility, 100%, doesn't it? And and on a lighter note, there are, I think actually David Attenborough is doing a a, a new documentary at the weekend, I think. It may well be a BBC one on on television. Uh, And he has a very calm approach. You think that with all of his knowledge and his worries and his fears that he will be screaming and roaring, but he's always so measured about it. And I think also by being as measured as he is, his, um, his thoughts and his beliefs and his prophecies ring ring really and very much true because he's probably in a very calm and calculated manner when he imparts the information. Uh, I wonder would you say that about the Kardashians? I've never watched it, but I think it's either, it's a kind of a love-hate thing really, isn't it, with regards to the Kardashians? But after all of those years, I don't know, did I hear somewhere recently, it was about 14 on television, uh, it is now coming to an end. I uh, don't know what it's going to be replaced with. Um, no doubt there'll be some other reality TV show that will take over, but it certainly um, made the Kardashians very famous and very, very wealthy. So there hasn't been a day gone by in the last few days that the papers haven't put a twist on that one. Uh, and there are other things then to do with television and the cinema, because from now on, to be nominated for an Oscar, you will have to tick various boxes. Four in particular. The Academy now has set out four standards that must be ticked before you can actually be nominated for an Oscar. And those four standards, those categories are LGBT inclusion, female inclusion, ethnic inclusion, and disability groups inclusion. Like so... In the past now, say, for instance, movies like Gone with the Wind would have never got an Oscar. Uh, I think uh, The Godfather would have never got an Oscar. Probably Lord of the Rings would have never got an Oscar. Uh, and Braveheart and things like that. And in fact, Kirsty Alley is saying that the whole world has gone absolutely crazy now. Like, would you imagine ever telling Picasso how he should have to paint a picture? She says, Kirsty Alley, you remember her from Cheers. She says that Hollywood... You're swinging so far left now, you're bumping into your own ass. But I think it's important that there is inclusion going forward, where it's possible with regards to storylines and stuff like that, in fairness. But certainly, uh, the, the movie 1917, for instance, would have failed uh, to get an Oscar nomination because it was so pale-faced and white. Anyway, also, talking about different things uh, and the changing world we live in, get up into that attic, because I say there's an awful lot of people have sent stuff either to the skip or to a charity shop in boxes that they thought was worthless when in actual fact they're worth hundreds of thousands of euro. And the latest one is an old teapot, apparently an enameled teapot, little 15 centimetre thing in the UK that they were just about to send to a charity shop. But of course, instead, they brought it in to an auctioneer and valuer. And it sold in the UK yesterday for 110 grand small little thing turned out to be very 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 expensive and very old. Uh, Imagine we've all missed things like that in our life 
probably best not to know about it. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco. Save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie. I know it's been quite overwhelming in, in the last few days with regards to emails and texts and calls been overwhelming because it started out really talking about geriatric care and I wanted to kind of stay in that area over the past few days but it did move into different you know areas of, of the hospital and our healthcare system uh, but it's important again again and again and again to say that there are many people within the health service who are working very hard and they must find it uh, very upsetting to hear of so many calls and emails and texts from people who are unhappy uh, with hospital visits uh, particularly with regards to their, um, their family member or, or indeed uh, um, a mother or a father. But nurses have been getting in touch as well. I think it's a very balanced email from a nurse really, which is, I would sum up by saying, don't be afraid to come to the COAs. We are here to help and we want to help. She says, I'm a staff nurse and I have just, I have just a few things I want to stay at, say, uh, I'm just going to bed with a headache. I listened to your show yesterday. Very sorry to hear loved ones of patients so upset. I work as a nurse on a busy ward in the CUH. At night time, I could be responsible for 12 patients, uh, three rooms of four. Or I might have nine patients as well in isolation rooms. However, we all help out if one person is swamped. Uh, Yes, sometimes people have to wait for medication. Our drug round is at 10 p.m. However, as you can imagine, the checks we have to do, blood pressures, assessing someone's pain, someone may need the bathroom or assistance in bed. The round can go from 9 to 11 most nights, two hours to do just one round. We try to start at different sides of the ward so people aren't waiting every night. If we have a patient who requires transfer to ICU, this could even be later. Patients have their call bells if they need something urgently, and we'd always attend to these patients. Uh, Unfortunately, patients do fall. They feel braver than they should after anaesthetic, or they may be confused on medication. Some patients don't like ringing the bell no matter what you say to them. Even if all systems are in place, we cannot supervise every patient one-to-one. If a patient falls... We get the patient reviewed by a doctor, carry out relevant scans, contact the family. A lot of these patients would have a history of falls at home. Some don't. Either way, it breaks our hearts when it happens. We still feel guilty, even though it's out of our control. And thirdly, I don't know if it's possible for the general public to understand what we worked through in March and April. It was harrowing. We all came in on overtime and the stress was intense. We all showed up every day and worked so hard. It's not, it's hard not to feel the recent coverage on your program is a kick in the teeth. I'm nearly ashamed, even though I know the level of care we provide on our ward is fantastic. We get this feedback from people on a daily basis. Sometimes patients get a bed in a private hospital to finish their hospital stay. And they can often say, sure, I'm happy out here. I'd prefer to stay here. I just want to say to anyone listening, especially at the moment with visiting restrictions, we are looking after your loved ones like they are our own family. That's how we think of our patients. I know I'm speaking for the majority, so don't be afraid to come to the CUH. We will do our best to give you the best of care. Maybe we should have a a morning show with positive stories. Again, I'm sorry for all the people who phoned in. I'm not doubting their experiences. Uh, I'm hoping they are a minority. Sometimes when we're angry and sad and get bad news. The whole world seems wrong. I'm not taking from these people's experiences, however. Thank you for your time. Uh, I could go on forever, and that's from a nurse within the CUH itself. And there are others, actually, from um, nurses and staff in the CUH, but there's also a reaction 
to the statement that I read out yesterday on behalf of the CEO uh, of the um, CUH, and that was the Professor O'Callaghan. Um, firstly, and one of them says, firstly, Mr. O'Callaghan's response to the issues brought up in your show about the CUH is unbelievable. Did he not come on your show because how could he defend the indefensible? Anyone could have a PR company write a letter defending their opinion. As one of your earlier callers said, words mean nothing, actions is what's needed. I noticed also that anyone who called in or wrote to defend the CUH, especially employees, didn't ever mention how the elderly patients may have felt. They never even said how it must have felt for those on the receiving end of the treatment they received. Elderly patients or their families frightened to say anything in the wards because of punishments that would be meted out to the patients and loved ones. How dare they call themselves medical professionals? How dare he say that the allegations were uncorroborated? Isn't the word of the patients and their families evidence enough for him? But my real question is, what now? Should these issues be allowed to be a nine-day wonder? What do we need to do for those who are in CUH, frightened, lonely, suffering, even as your show aired? I suggest we all write to government officials to demand change in the way care is given. They and us have a responsibility to our elderly to speak for those who have no voice. If the CUH was fully confident in its level of care, then they should welcome anyone at any time through their doors without trying to hide anything. When they can do this, they can be confident they're doing a good job. The CEO mentioned that the geriatric care in the CUH is of the highest caliber. Well, wow, that is scary. If his benchmark is stories of neglect, filth and degradation and abuse, um, shame on him. Thanks so much, though, for the last few days, giving the voice to the voiceless. So that's just a selection. And there will be an awful lot more that I'm going to read out throughout the course of the morning because I'm going to take more time to read them out throughout the course of the morning. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 1851-04106. Red FM. And you can text 0868-104106. Whether I get to everything on air or not, I don't know, because at some stage, sooner or later, we will have to move on, but not any time soon. Una, good morning. Hi, hi there. Thanks for holding. So you're talking about 13 years ago, but you say, I can't believe that it is still the same. What's still the same? Yeah, uh, it, it, it seems to me now that this has become endemic, not pandemic, but endemic in, in the, some sort of psyche in the CUH. Uh, yeah, 13 years ago, my father had a turn and he had to go into accident and emergency in the CUH. Uh, we brought him in, you know, and everything was fine. But by the time the, the night was over, it was just uh, a nightmare. We lived a nightmare. He was in the trolley. Uh, now, he had a curtain around him, but there was a line of people there. Uh, he had terrible pain, and he was getting tended to, but, you know, very sporadically. So, basically, he was left there waiting for tests all night long. There was a drunk fella came in next to him uh, at about 2 o'clock in the morning after being fighting with a broken leg, and he was roaring and shouting, and then all his friends were in and out talking about the fight. Now, my father is a kind of a stoic man, so he was in a, he was in his early 80s at the time, totally corpus mentis, out walking his dog before this happened and uh, driving and all the rest of it. But he said, look, leave it. And then eventually I told a nurse what was going on and she said, we can't say anything to them. They'll wreck the place. They'll turn the place upside down if we say anything. So I said, can you at least have a pillow? My father has no pillow. So she came back after five minutes and she said, we have no pillows. She gave me a pillow slip with a couple of what looked like tea towels. And I 
I I was trying to stuff the pillowcase, and then my yeah, brother you, who you was do you me. do you would agree with me here that the lack of pillows was probably as frustrating for the nurse as it was for you. Well, this is it. I mean, it's not that at this point they weren't. So you know, she doesn't want to be giving you a pillowcase full of tea towels. You know, she wants more pillows. Well, that's the thing. You see, that this is the thing. It wasn't her fault, and and she was kind of dealing with these other shower next door in the bed as well. You know, yeah, but the, nor the, is it just to be fair. Like nor is it um, the the nor is it the fault of the nurse that there's a bunch of drunks inside there roaring and shouting, and the nurse is afraid. Exactly. That's that's again back to management policy and exactly. and, and security. That's a security issue. Exactly. Totally. Totally. Very distressing for the staff and for, and at the you know, time you know I, that you know that staff get assaulted and beaten up and get digs and kicks and all sorts. Well, I know. I know. I know. And at this point, you know, we were we were trying to be supportive as well. You know, we weren't kind of turning around and know, attacking the the system. But hey, look. Seven o'clock the following morning, we had enough of it, and I said to one of the nurses, "We're taking him out. We're, we're, we're taking him somewhere else." And she said, "You can't until the doctor comes back and discharges him." And I said, "No, he's not here for another minute." And I, we put him into a wheelchair. My brother backed the car up to the back door in the in the ward downstairs in the emergency accident emergency, and we opened the door and we wheeled him out and put him into the car and took him over to the Mercy. Now that was a totally different story. He had a big operation in the Mercy. He was. Three weeks in intensive care, excellent. He came through it with flying colours. Twelve months later, he he slipped and he broke his hip. And the doctor, GP, said he'll have to go into the CUH. And I said, no way, doctor. If he goes in there, he'll come out in a box. And he said, there's nothing we can do about it. I said, can he go to the Mercy? He said, no, there's no facility there for him. So he had to go to the accident and emergency again in the CUH and up into a ward. He came through the operation and he was in a, 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 a recovery room on his own and next thing he got MRSA and he had to be, they put him up then into a mixed ward upstairs which they called an observation ward. Now there was all elderly people inside it and that's when the nightmare really began. Okay, okay. There We're was, in a different league now to your brother having to go home and bring back a pillow. This is MRSA, an infection that he got after the operation in the hospital. He went into a mixed geriatric ward, six men, six women. And what happened yeah. then? Well, I mean, the poor unfortunate elderly people that were in there with him, like there was one woman, I won't go into too much detail, but she had dementia, obviously, and she was throwing her clothes off. And my father, you know, he was reared in a generation where you didn't mix men and women, um, and especially in that situation. And he was in an awful state, not uh, blaming her, but like he just felt he shouldn't be there. Basically, you know, the days went on and he then contracted C. difficile in that ward. Second infection, second virus. Second, yeah. I tried to get him moved. Now, he was a VHI patient and, you know, not that I have anything against public health. I'm public patient myself, but uh, he had VHI all his life. They wouldn't take him out. There's no private wards. Look, there was nobody coming out of that ward. They said there's infection in here and until it's cleared and everyone is cleared uh, there's nobody leaving and I said even if they die and he said they said yes that's the way it is and you know they were dying in there with this MRSA and Divacil and they were filling the bed then with another elderly person like they weren't kind of locking the ward and keeping people out you know so they were so, bringing others into a ward with yeah. C. diff and MRSA and yeah. you describe it as filthy it was filthy 
filthy. Uh, there was spillages on the floor. They weren't being cleaned up. I was sticking to the floor when I was walking around my father's bed. I asked somebody to clean it and get somebody and they sent this chap in eventually after about an hour and he got a few wet tissues and he was cleaning around the bed on the floor and I and the tissues were filthy then coming up off the floor and I said, can you not get a mop? And he said, I'm only agency here. He said, this is what I do and, and that's it. The cleaners will be in in the morning. Now, the following morning I came in and I was still sticking to the floor at about 10 o'clock after the cleaner should have been in. And, you know, my father had been left sitting on his bed all night and he had soiled himself, something a man had, like him had never done in his life, with C. difficile, which is diarrhea-related. Diarrhea and vomiting and everything, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. He was left, he said, I rang all night long and he said, nobody came. And he said, I, I'm mortified. He said, I, I soiled myself. And I said it to them and they just looked at me like as if I was, you know, talking in a foreign language or something like that. I got no satisfaction. Now, look, basically, I I think it's just a culture that has slipped in there. It's like institutionalised euthanasia, I call it. The attitude doesn't seem to be there among some of the staff. There seemed to be one staff member there that was wielding this kind of you know, whip around the place and she wouldn't, she was the one that everybody was looking at and when she walked... Uh, looking, at her, or, looking at her afraid of, which... Afraid of, okay. terrified of her. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I had a conversation with a family yesterday off air and they've asked me not to broadcast it. I, I'm not even sure if I can refer to it in any amount of detail, but they, they described a similar sentiment to you that there is, a, a, unfortunately, um, an element of fear amongst staff um, I'm not going to go any further than saying that, but that, you know, that they are in fear of their superiors within, in some circumstances, within wards. Um, did your dad then go downhill? Oh, well, basically after about two and a half weeks of trying to get him out or at least into a private room, he went downhill and you know, the the last couple of days I said to them, look, I need to be able to come in and see him, you know, and they put me on a list that I could come in, which was fair enough. But on the last day I went in, they said, no, you're not on the list. And they wouldn't let me in. And I had this gut feeling, you know, that I needed to be with him. So I, I just stood my ground and eventually this nurse that was on, this one that was wielding this uh attitude of fear around the place she left me up and she said these people are supposed to be sleeping you're not supposed to be here and my father of course was looking at me saying oh, go girl you know I mean like we don't want to be upsetting them and I said no I'm staying here I stayed with them for an hour and then I was shunted out and I got a phone call 20 minutes later with that nurse crying on the phone saying I'm so sorry your father has passed he passed alone I could have been there but she was no way you know, now I can understand a certain amount of their rules and regulations, but there's no, there's no feeling with some of these people. I don't know if it's a kind of a personality thing that they have or what, but it's just there. The last 13 years, still there. It's not probably the same nurse. It's just something that's passed down. I say it takes more than three generations to breed oppression out of people. And these people, you know, they come into these positions, some of them, and they do not know how to behave. And they just actually spread this fear among the staff. And, you know, if people 
are going to put their hands up and be defensive about this type of thing. We're going to go back to the days of the orphanages. The the orphanages is mother and baby homes and institutional care and so I know. We're going to go back to that attitude where, you know, it's you don't say anything about it. I know, but I'm, I've, been cognizant, I've been cognizant all week of those that are passionate and are committed and are hardworking and love their jobs and put in the hours and go home exhausted, um, you know, who's, who's, well, you who's, see, whose professionalism has been sullied now, not by the yeah, stories I, that are being told on air, but by having to tell these stories on air. Well, this is it. I mean, I was traumatized after this and I couldn't believe when this came up the other day because I I didn't open my mouth about it to the authorities. My family members know about it and I wrote it all down in a journal at the time, uh, which I don't have in front of me at the moment, about 20 pages. That was 13 years ago and it's still going on. And there are wonderful people there. It's nothing to do with my father passing because I lost other close family members and I understand that people die, but it's to do with this endemic attitude among some of the staff. And I'm sure there are other staff members there that are very passionate about their job and now they're throwing their hands up saying, oh my God, we're all tarnished now with the same brush. You're not. But do you we believe the stories, do you, yeah, do you believe the stories need to be told? Well, oh. I mean, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck oh. and quacks like a duck, you know? I know, but it's, diffi- it's difficult to have any kind of balance then. Um, and, you know, so I'm like I'm getting whacked by a lot of medics over the last few days, but I, I, I'm in a, between a rock and a hard place. Do I say, listen, I'm not going to be telling these stories because we can't get balance on the air with other stories or the happier stories because they're not really coming in. So is it even fair at all to be talking about it? Well, you see, if we don't bring these things out in the open, nothing changes. And it's, you know, people should be pulling together when something like this happens, not berating nurses and doctors, which you're not doing, but, you know, ordinary people on the street. We, we, we can't start shouting at doctors and nurses now and calling them names. We have to look deeper than this and look at the bigger picture. Uh, and if it's there and it, it, it's happening, you know, the staff themselves, I'm sure there's some of them at the moment saying, Yes, this you know they're probably in dread themselves going to work every day, having to work with some. Oh, well, other. I would like to. I would love to hear if some of them are saying, "Thank God, people are talking about this." Listen, I'm, I do appreciate you taking the call, Una. I'm going to have to move on now. Uh, it's unfortunate that your dad passed away under the circumstances that he did, yeah. and our thoughts are with you and him. Thank you so much. All right, Neil, go keep going with this because the you know the can of worms needs to be dealt Thank with. Thank you. Back after ten, text oh eight six eight one zero four one zero six. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851-04106. Red FM. Christine, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so I'm going to blast through as much as I can. I'm not saying I'm limiting your time, but uh, just let's be as concise as we can. What's on your mind? What happened? Now, it's going back a good few years now. I was listening to the show over the last few days, bits and pieces of people's stories of their elderly um, in CUH. Now, I was in that ward myself even though I was only 21 at the time. It was a good few years back, but I don't know if you remember how bad the trolley crisis was back in 2008. Um, it was nearly impossible to get a bed. So I was admitted to A&E. I was quite sick at the time, and I was on a trolley. Don't ask me how long I was on the trolley for. I, it could have been days, it could have been a week, I'm not 100% sure. But they needed to put me into um, an isolation room, a private room, because they weren't 100% sure what I had, whether it was contagious, they just didn't know. And the only room they had available for me, it was, I'm not sure of the ward. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's just the crux of your story really is what matters, yeah? 
So, now I will say, Nate, for the most part, my care was excellent. I know one of the nurses in particular, he couldn't have done enough for me. I know there was a day I was just feeling sorry for myself. He just came in and sat with me and had a chat and it meant more than anything. But there was a couple of instances now where I, I felt I felt a bit degraded and I felt a bit neglected. Now, there was one day, which I'm not kind of, this is kind of no one's fault, really, but it could have been worse. Um, what I had was a type of an encephalitis, as it turned out in the end, but it was a, a rare strain of it, so I lost the use of my legs. I was more or less paralysed from the waist down. I, I had feeding, but I couldn't use them. So there was one day, they, after a few weeks of being up there, they sat me out in the chair just to try and get me out of the bed for, for a while, and um, I was on my own in the room. And as it was a private room, there were no other patients either. And I uh, do the kind of plastic chairs. And I, I was in my pyjamas, obviously. So after a while, I slid off the chair mm. and I was down on the floor. Now, I was able to reach the call button and I pressed it and I pressed it and I pressed it and, and nothing was happening. And I managed to reach my phone. I knew my mother was on the way up to see me. Mm. So when I rang her, she was on the bus. So she then rang the hospital switchboard got put through to the ward and then they got someone down to my room. She had to ring the hospital to get through. She had to ring the hospital to get through, yeah. Yeah, there could have been, would it have been at a time when nurses were doing their rounds? They say they have particular rounds they need to do that can take a couple of hours that would take them away from the desk? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Now, I couldn't say. I couldn't say for definite. Now, I know there was another instant. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's absolutely mortifying. But as I said... I wasn't able to walk. So during the night, something happened as I wasn't able to get to a bathroom. And it was the kind of, the nurse's demeanour, I got a kind of, I got tutted at. Now you can imagine being 21, being a young woman, like how mortifying it was. And then to feel, to be made to feel it was kind of like, it was my fault that I did something wrong. It was something I couldn't control. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what I mean? Now, I'm not on here to bash the CUH. I'm really not. I gave birth to my child up in CUMH there two years ago. As I said, I spent two months up there. I was under the same doctor as my father. The man is, he's magic. He's absolutely brilliant. Now, what I'm wondering is, we all know the nurses are overworked. I saw it myself. They were supposed to be doing 12-hour shifts. You could call it 13 or 14 hours from what I saw. Like, is it, is it the fact that they're not, I don't believe they're not willing to give the care? Or if you're going to get a bad egg, you get a bad egg no matter where you go. But is it the fact that they're so overworked and so understaffed that they're physically unable to give the level of care that elderly people and high dependency people need? See, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not in there to see or hear the stories from people where they see many people standing around laughing or sharing a joke or I'm not there to see bells unanswered. Yeah. But what, what really bothered me was the level of cleanliness that's been described or lack of it over the past few days. Yeah, um, um, the cleaning regime is certainly an issue, I think, and the amount of people who are getting infections in hospitals always has been an yeah. issue. So, I'd be, you know, yeah. like there have been incidents where, where patients have been shouted at. Um, uh, I mean, I spoke to, to people yesterday off the air who were actually too afraid to come on the air because they have... Uh, loved ones in hospital and they feel as if they'll be victimised. Why would they have that yeah. feeling at all, you know, if they weren't living in unless, they had, unless there, there are people in there in an acute sense of fear. Anyway, this is just my observations over the past few days. Notwithstanding the fact that we clearly know 
that an awful lot of people working in healthcare are very good and very kind and very compassionate. Absolutely. And we often Absolutely. only hear the more negative side of things when people, that nurse is right really, when people are ill or vulnerable or worried, everything um, is, uh, is, is, I'm not saying blown out of proportion, but... It's heightened. Correct, that's the word. Thanks for that. Thanks for it's that. Everything's heightened. Right. Now I will say there was another day I, um, I had a glass of leucotate on my table over the bed and I knocked it now, I said it to the lady when she came into the cleaning, I apologised for her. Oh, she said, no problem. So she said she'd clean it. So later on that day, my mother came up. And where I had spilled it was where the chair is, alongside the bed. So my mother sat down and stuck to the floor. Do you know, she was actually still sticking to the floor at that stage. Like, the cleaning does leave a bit to be desired. Now, look, as I said, that's going back a few years. They might have rectified it. But... um well, I mean, I'm hearing during the week of, of very dirty toilets and unclean toilets. And at this hour of the morning, I won't go into a description of what's on the floor there. Appreciate it, mm. Christine. Thank you so much. Uh, I was a patient in the CUH last September, admitted acutely and very unwell in severe pain. Nurses and doctors in A&E were amazing. We've heard that a lot this week about the level of care and attention in the A&D. They were so on top of things. When I got to the wards, things changed. I was writhing in pain, asking for pain relief on so many occasions, and left waiting for long periods without them. My meds were not given to me or were given or were given wrong on a few occasions. Mother of God. I gave out to the nurses, but still apologised for giving out even. Uh, they were so severely understaffed and dealing with so many very ill patients per nurse. I don't blame the nurses. I am a nurse. I blame the chronic understaffing and poor treatment of nurses, which does not entice them to stay in the profession. They are beyond burned out. And I'm a nurse myself. That's interesting because there was an email yesterday from another nurse who said, don't give out my name because I'm trying to get out of this profession, but I want to do it at my own time. I just heard a trainee nurse on your show telling people if they're not happy in the CUH, they should go private. I went to the CUH as a private patient. I'm afraid to go into too much detail as I might identify other people in the room, but I was listening to your show and it is not only the elderly that are neglected in our great centre of excellence. I a woman, woman in, my major, in my late 30s who had major surgery in the CUH earlier this year. I spent a total of 13 days in CUH. I was moved to the observation ward after surgery. It was a mixed ward, six people, one of which was an elderly woman who was dying. Her family were with her. They had no privacy whatsoever. We could all hear them trying to comfort her in her last hours. One evening, a man was brought in and died in the middle of the night. They were performing CPR on him, and we could all hear it, and the family screaming when they were brought in. There was a woman next to me who had a stroke. She went hysterical after hearing this. Uh, her blood pressure, when she heard them with the CPR, and I'm trying to bring the man back, that is. Um, her blood pressure went sky high and the nurses were telling her to calm down. That man was kept, in dead man, in his cubicle until almost afternoon before the body was removed from our ward. At one point, the service staff collecting the trays after breakfast opened his curtain, asking him if he had a tray. He had passed away. I was kept in that room for five days before I was finally moved to a female ward. My stay was what I can only describe as a nightmare. By the time I left the room, I was the only female patient in the observation room with five men, three of which were elderly with dementia, who spent all day and all night shouting and cursing and swearing. The heat in the room was stifling. I wasn't mobile, so I was handed a dish and a sponge in the morning to try and wash myself as best I could. I was basically left to fend for myself. The nurses were understaffed and were mostly taken up attending the elderly men in the room. 
I begged for them to let a member of my family in during the day to help me wash. Um, but due to COVID, this was not allowed. I have to say most of the nurses were very good and did work hard, but there just wasn't enough of them. My stay in this UH was very traumatic. It made a bad situation much worse. Don't give out my details. This may sound silly, but I need to go back for further treatment. And I'm terrified they will identify me. Thank you for that. Gillian, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, your sister said she'd rather die at home than go back into a hospital. Why? Um, not just any hospital, just the CUH. Uh, she was admitted in March 2017. Uh, she'd been diagnosed in February with cancer. And um, she got to the stage where she could no longer walk or anything like that. So she had to be admitted. And we were told she was being admitted for a week. She was being admitted to the oncology ward. Now, when we got to the CUH, um, because of delays that happened in the A&E, she ended up on Ward 1B. That was on the Friday. I stayed with her all day till one o'clock in the morning. She was brought up to the ward. I think at one o'clock I went home. I rang her the following morning to see if she was all right. Uh, she was crying in pain. She'd been waiting on her morphine. Uh, she'd been told uh, it wasn't available. This is the place with the biggest pharmacy in Ireland. There was no morphine available. It's still very raw to me. Yes, because um, she was in with um, cancer in her spine and her ribs. So yeah, it's nothing else. Primary, that breast, primary breast cancer. Breast and cancer, second, spine and ribs. In five, in five other places. Okay. Um, so she was miss- admitted on the Friday. Um, on this Saturday, she, I had to. I had to go up. They were tell- saying that you have your own medication. I said to them, "You tell them your sister's not coming because I had her medication." I said, "You tell them I'm not coming up till later on. You need the medication now." But I headed straight up. By the time I got there, they'd given her the medication. That was about ten o'clock, um, and this started proceeded for the whole week that she was in there. On the Sunday night, they came in to give her an injection in her stomach. Now, my sister wasn't on her own at any stage. I was there all day long, and my brother would have been there in the evening with her. And my sister had a fear of needles, hospitals, the whole lot. Um, a nurse came in and went to give her an anti-blood clot injection because she was a, a bedbone patient, basically, to have to get them. And my sister got hysterical and was saying, I've been told nothing about this. And they said, but you got it last night. She hadn't received one the night before. My brother had been there with her. So the Monday morning, I called the doctor that came in and I said they went to give her an injection last night and said she'd already received it. And she said, oh, maybe she was asleep. I said, my sister wouldn't sleep through an injection no matter what. So they were going to launch an investigation into it. it we never heard anything back about that. But because I was her carer, I was her only sister. We four brothers, we'd lost one six months earlier. Um, literally, I documented everything. Because there was her, different discussions and disagreements or confusion over yeah. uh, her over medication her regime, yeah? And when she was yeah, getting what um, and what she was getting. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, she lived on her own. She was 52, lived on her own. They decided on Monday they wanted to send her home, even though she couldn't walk, she couldn't cross the room or anything. Um, so I started taking pictures of all her medication and stuff, which actually helped us at a later date. Because um, they were telling her she'd, like, on her chart, by the time she left, they had stuff written down like she was self-medicating, as in she'd own medicine there. She, her medicine was in my house, so she wasn't self-medicating. Um, that she had received medication, which she hadn't received, and other stuff like this. Um, we had a family wedding the same week, and I 
went to the matron and I said it to her and she was saying, uh, you know, this isn't a babysitting service and stuff like this. And I was saying, I said, her doctor admitted her. I said, one year oncologist admitted my sister and said she was to be here for a week because she needed so many tests and they wanted her up and mobile. They wanted her pain managed with medication. So that was grand. We The wedding was on the Thursday. We went to the wedding. I got a phone call on Friday morning asking me when am I coming to get my sister. Um, and I went to collect her on the Saturday to take her home. And the woman in the bed next door to me said, could I talk to you for a minute? So I went outside the door and I said, yeah, all right, because my sister was very quiet. Unlike me, my sister was very quiet. So I went outside the door. She said, what happened to your sister yesterday? She said, was an absolute disgrace. She said she was so upset. I said, what happened yesterday? Because my sister hadn't told me anything. Um, a doctor had come around and told her she was being sent home. And she said, you know, how am I supposed to get home? My family aren't in the city at the moment. I live on my own. And he said, this is an acute hospital. You're not an acute patient. Two weeks and two days after that, my sister was, was dead outside Maryland. So I want to know, like we met with them afterwards. We met with, not financially or anything like that. We met with them because... I documented everything and I did advise anybody going into any hospital, document everything, take pictures of all your medication that's been given to you and stuff like that. Because my sister, I was the one who was washing her outside there constantly. We, I made sure when we were away for the wedding that there was someone with her at all times. Uh, on the Friday from 12 o'clock till half past one. Well, I mean, that's, that's, uh, but that's very important because families do have a responsibility uh, to pitch yeah. in, particularly if hospitals are really busy and clearly understaffed. You know, I mean, yeah. it could be understaffed because there's not enough of them. They're going to be understaffed because there's not enough of them and not all of them are working and not all of them are pulling their weight. Do you know what I mean? So in extraordinary times, it would involve maybe families getting involved, you know, if at all possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly what we did. Like, I used to drop my children to school first thing in the morning. I'd go straight to the age. I'd stay with my sister till I had to collect them from school. I'd get my orders to mind them. I'd go back up to the CUH. I'd stay with my sister till that evening. And then one of my brothers would come up and stay with her till my, my oldest brother would but come the beds, up. Yeah, but the bedside manner wasn't the best. Is that what you think? No, yeah, so no, you're not an acute patient. This is an acute... Yeah. 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 Did did she so, did she go home with you then, or did she? she get, did, I took her. I took her home, and um, my own, our own, her own doctor. In fairness, had already been on to the palliative care in Marymount, and she came home here on the Saturday. Um, I have six children myself, but we, she was delighted because she had her own children for the two and a half weeks she was here with me. Um, the palliative care rang me the Sunday morning after I brought my sister home, and they were in my house nearly every day helping us, advising us, and she was brought into Marymount on the uh, Thursday afternoon and she passed away on the Sunday afternoon. How do, how do Marymount do it, I wonder, that they can always be I, there I for, for everyone? They, they never, they, no one falls through the cracks with Marymount. It's amazing. No matter what. They did, they did like, my parents are elderly and, like, we're, we, we were a large family. There was originally seven, five boys and two girls. As I said, we'd, brought, we'd buried my brother six months earlier. And then my sister got sick after that. And it was unexpected. It, it started off back pain and worked from there. But from the second we started dealing with Mary Mount, the difference of care, of bedside manner, of treatment, everything. Their angels, even their humour, when, like, even right, like, when they told me to call 
my family that, you know, we need to assemble the family. Even when they explained it to us, she wasn't going to survive the day. They did it so kindly, so gently. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And did she at some stage say that she had wanted to stay at home and not going back into hospital, your sister? She um, did. Her doctor had come here on the Wednesday and said she needed to go back into hospital because she was deteriorating. She'd lost an awful lot of weight. And um, the two options were the CUH or Marymount. And she said, let me die in the bed here. I am not going back to CUH. So we spoke to her about Marymount. Now, obviously, people think when they hear Marymount, or oh, you know, you're going in there and you're going in there to die. But they also have a palliative care site outside there where you go in and you get your pain medication. So that was how we explained it to her. Because still at this stage, we didn't think my sister was going to be dead four days later. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we were talking, they were talking rehydration and stuff like that to help her like survive longer and stuff. But Unfortunately enough, that wasn't how it worked out. But after the CUH, she literally gave up after the CUH. She had no fight left in her. because, And that was how she... And it wasn't like just that thing with the doctor. That was only one thing. That was only one little minor thing. There was loads of stuff that happened. Like she couldn't cross the bath... She couldn't cross the room to go to the bathroom. So there was a commode next to her bed. But they wanted to send her home on her own living alone yeah I know I know I know I'm just trying to I'm just I'm just trying to be very delicate about this but perhaps a hospital setting is not somebody a, a place a long term long term stay location for somebody near end of life you know and they perhaps knew that she well, was end of life we we hadn't been told like I I had been looking after I had been I'd been at every appointment with her since she'd been diagnosed in February and like it was a case of she'd been told that you know we're 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 going to do this treatment first. She'd only one dose of radiotherapy, which literally left her in agony. And like after that, then it was just like hormone treatment. But after that, it was a case of you know we're going to do this first, and then like in like maybe next year we're, we're talking about operating once we can get proper care. So it wasn't like you know you're being diagnosed now and you're going to be dead within two months. That's wasn't how I found out how bad my sister was when the doctor who was around on the Monday was actually take. You know they do their rounds with the junior doctors. Mm. I overheard her telling the junior doctors about my sister's case outside the door. Saying what? That she was more advanced. That like you oh know it's primary in the breast, it's in the spine, it's in the liver, and it has now started to go into the skull as well. Yeah, yeah. So this is information that you didn't have. No, it was, and, and I'd been at all her appointments with her. Okay. Okay, okay. It's tragic. It really and truly is. But you were there in the end, and she was at home, and that was her wish, surrounded by family, yeah. but way too young. At the age of 52, was it? At the age of 52, yeah. All right, okay. And no one's saying that. I was admitted myself a month after my sister passed, but I was, I was lucky. I ended up in their cardiology ward, and I specified at the meeting we had later with the CUH, it's like walking into a different hospital. It is literally like walking into, like the CUH is supposed to be a centre of excellence. Their cardiac unit is, I would class it as, as a centre of excellence. But where my sister was, 
Not a chance. Okay, okay. It's good to have a bit of balance. Thank you, Gillian. Much obliged to you. Back after the break on 1850 104 106. Una standing by. Back in a minute. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco. Save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie. Text 0868104106. Can't come on air. I'm a paramedic with the National Ambulance Service in Cork City. Crews, paramedic crews in the CUH last night were waiting over five hours to hand over patients due to the lack of beds. The ambulance service in Cork is unbelievably stretched. I think people of Cork should know more about the ambulances or lack thereof in their areas. I can guarantee you that people would be shocked and worried if they knew the full truth. So that's from a paramedic in a five-hour wait. What will it be like when we head into the dark days uh, of winter, uh, I wonder? Um, My mother-in-law is in a Cork hospital for the past two weeks. She was told by a doctor today that there are zero COVID-19 infection patients in any of the hospitals at the moment. The hospital itself is open for visiting between 7.30 and 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. every evening. Please highlight these stories instead of scaremongering. It must be interesting to know that anybody who told a story uh, of their um, experiences within certain aspects of the CUH are nothing more than scaremongers. I have a positive story about the CUH. My daughter spends a lot of time in the Puffin Ward there. The girls there go above and beyond for us every single time. The staff really couldn't do enough for us. They go out of their way to make sure that we are doing okay. And I'm delighted to hear that. You know, the the week started with regards to the treatment of elderly patients within certain settings of the CUH. The elderly, those that need extra care attention not just medical but to some extent emotional as well i've had surgery three times in the cuh i'm a young woman i don't need a babysitter in hospital if i'm having a bad day my family will comfort me nurses unfortunately don't have time for that kind of thing i need them to get me well and get me out of hospital and they always do that for me whenever i am in there Uh, that's their job they are not counselors they're not your mammy they no longer have time to baby people Regarding hospital issues, it's the management that should be held accountable always. Complaints from staff and patients have gone right to the top in the past, but they don't want to hear about it. The good staff should slow down or go on strike, but they love their job and care for their patients too much to do this. Well done to the HSE staff who love their jobs. Please please keep up the good work, though, Neil. Stay safe. I'm a long-term patient who has made a complaint about a hospital in the past. Spoke with a family yesterday off air who also have made a complaint to management with regards to inside in CUH, there are certain individuals working in there who are not wearing masks. And this could well be uh, members of the uh, medical teams, but equally some of the portering staff and some security. And this particular family are very worried about that um, as feeling that everybody, particularly those that are moving around from different wards and different parts of the hospital or even in and out of the hospital, should have a mask on. I wanted to reply to your caller during the week who said English-speaking nurses are under pressure because most patients only come to them for assistance because other nurses, their English isn't so good. First of all, nursing is a professional qualification. I find it difficult to believe that there are nurses who cannot speak proper English. They will not get their registration certs if they can't communicate with their patients. Until we stop blaming what we perceive as different for our own domestic problem, we will never move forward as a country. People are making genuine complaints about their observations in hospitals and some people want to blame others or refuse to believe there are nurses who cannot communicate in English. This is about 
the poor hygiene conditions and the horrible treatment of elderly patients in hospital. There are fantastic nurses as well as lazy ones, regardless of what country or what language they speak. Focus on identifying the bad eggs instead of blaming particular people with regards to how good or bad their English is. Frustrated with the student nurse's English, or sorry, the student nurse's email you read out, how dare she say that when our elderly family members go into hospital that we don't have to look after them. Our families have asked countless times could we look after our mother while she was in hospital. We wanted to feed her, dress her and wash her. We told them that we would wear PPE gear. We told them over and over again. We were up to the hospital every night dropping over food, clothes and whatever my mother needed whilst we were not allowed in. Uh, not everyone abandons their loved ones in hospital. I'm disgusted that the student nurse said that we do. Uh, my mother's been a patient in the geriatric ward. On several occasions, the care she has received has always been fantastic. She wouldn't go anywhere else for her care. She's always felt very safe and well looked after. The nurses and all the staff have been very kind, very professional. I can't understand why a close relative couldn't walk one of the family members to the toilet without having to call a nurse to do it. Or why family members don't help their mother or father or patient with their dinner. I always did it for my mother. Nurses are great and wonderful people. So that's a selection. Uh, just to let you know, I was on your show the other morning and since then I got a lot of messages from staff saying it's not all of them, but they have admitted to me that a lot of the stories being aired are true. Their phone lines have gone crazy since your broadcast. Don't give out my details. Um, if nothing else, it, it might it might be a bit of a wake-up call and maybe a shake-up call and that's got to be good, yeah? Jonathan, good morning. Hi, Neil. How are you? Um, I want to hear more of the positive stuff. In spite, of, I'm not taking from the negative or the worrying or the levels of hygiene within certain scenarios in the hospital, but it's important to accentuate positive stories too. So have you got one for me? I have, Neil. I have, yeah. I suppose yesterday I was listening and um, I just felt, look, that uh, I'd ring in and give a positive story. Last Father's Day, I'd just gone, um, my young boy, uh, Alex, fell off his uh, bicycle in Mallow at home. Um, and when he came in, we knew that he was after doing damage to his elbow. So my wife actually took him to Mallow Hospital first, and this was like quarter to seven, and they said, come up straight away. They closed at seven. They were so nice to him. They x-rayed him, but they said he had a very, very bad break, and he would have to go to Cork. So my wife came down, then, and I took him up to Cork, and from the minute we arrived in Cork in accident in A&E, they were fantastic. Obviously, he would have to have a COVID test done. Uh, that was probably the most traumatic part of the whole thing, and that was nothing. That was nothing against the staff, but it was just very, very hard for a, a five-year-old to have the swab done. And he's is that down the throat and up the nose? Yeah, yeah, absolutely horrible. Neither, but the doctors and nurses were so, so nice to him when he was doing it, and you know he got over that. Then, but from the minute we went in, Neil, like it, it was amazing. Within two hours. We were down in the puffin ward. Um, he was staying the night. Um, they had him comfortable in the bed. Uh, they couldn't do any more from. He was going to be operated at nine o'clock in the morning. They gave me facilities to sleep alongside him. Um, it was Father's Day, so it was a strange day to spend in hospital with your young fellow. But you know what? Um, they were very, very nice to us. And at six o'clock in the morning, he um, the nurses came in. Uh, we got the, he was got ready to go to the operating theatre. I was left to go down as far as the operating theatre. I wasn't sure whether I would be, and I was a bit concerned for him, you know, that he was five years of age. But they left me go right in, and even the doctor inside and the anesthesiologist that was knocking him out um, made him so comfortable. Started talking about chocolate Oreos in the bubble there, and he kept watching it. And next minute, Neil, he was he was out like the light. 
and uh, I, I, they sent me away and, uh, you know, I just knew that he was in safe hands. There were so many people around him. They were just absolutely fantastic. I went away for a cup of coffee. Two hours later, got a phone call to come back, um, came down to the ward and uh, he was sitting up inside in the bed with the nurses after having his operation. He had to get um, two big pins in his elbow, Neil, um, which is for a five-year-old, he was absolutely um, fantastic. The pain was no issue with him ranting, you know. Um, he got the pins in, and uh, the pins were in there for a series of weeks, and um, he had to go back up to CUH then to the outpatients. All good. So when he went up to the outpatients again, uh, very very busy there. Neil was, um, but again it was it was fantastic um, service given there. You know, even we we all people moved around. There was elderly people came in, obviously for X-rays and scans, and people gave up their seats. But things moved away very very quickly. Very professional. Everyone was wearing the masks and all in for X-rays again. And then he had to go down and he had to get the cast taken off. And the, the doctor was very funny when he was taken off the cast. I'll just give you. I want to lay you. He uh, had the saw, and all the, all Alex saw was the saw, and he was petrified. So he said, "Give give, give me give me Daddy's hand there." He said, and he ran the saw up and down my hand. And he said, "Look, Daddy's Daddy's hand is perfect." So he was happy out. But there, look, Neil, I want to lay you. But I didn't think. They use plaster of Paris casts anymore, but they, you're telling me yeah, they do. They do, yeah. And uh, like just the way he explained the saw to a five year old, and he said, "Look here, Daddy's hand lens is perfect." <laughs> now I was looking at me and I said, "I hope this thing works." <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, they put they, your, they, they put him at ease. Know, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they talked to him at, at his level and in there in the puff, the puffin ward. You know, they spoke to. But look, I have a lot of friends, Neil nurses, I'm in the fire service myself and doctors, and, you know, and these people work, work so hard, so, so hard and look, we know in every walk of life there's going to be problems and things won't always work over. Could right I just, I know people. that could, but could I just say that the week started and very much through the week all we've been, all I've wanted to kind of highlight was the care of the elderly closer to the end of their life rather than your son and the Puffin Ward at the start of his life. Yes. The, the, the right. issues and the worries and the concerns are for geriatric care you know yeah but I just I just tell you my own I'm just on geriatric both my grandmothers Neil uh, passed away back in Kentuck Hospital and I tell you one thing Neil the care and attention they got there was second to none second to none like the family my own family members would tell you that like they both passed away within a short period of time back in the same same hospital but the doctors and the nurses there did so much for them for the whole time they were there right up to the time that they passed good you know? good do you still uh, have that hospital we do in Kentucky, yeah, just down the road from Mallow. But Mallow Hospital is a fantastic hospital as well, Neil, and that has to be highlighted as well. There's a, a, a major treatment um, uh, assessment area there. And in fairness, I'll just give you a short one, Neil. With about a week after taking off the cast, we had to go back to Mallow Hospital. He broke his finger on the other hand. So I don't know when my hospital visits be finishing there, Neil. <laughs> There'd be another few, I'd say, the way he's getting around. <laughs> they were very good. But look, to be fair, um, I just wanted to hide. Next time you can bring him up in a fire engine, maybe. I will, I will, I will. I will. All right, cheers, Listen, Jonathan. Thanks, thanks for taking the call, Neil. Take Bye. care. You're lucky to have that hospital. Hold on to it and hold on to Mallow as well because people down west have a long travel to come up to Cork because we had big changes in the city over the years. We lost the North Infirmary. The South Infirmary changed. We lost the orthopedic, by and large, of course, and uh, many other uh, services went then uh, and everything got kind of shoehorned into one big super hospital if you like and I'm not so sure that that is always the best way forward isn't it kind of community care 
in smaller settings an awful lot better uh, anyway keep those calls coming text 0868104106 just a fast one um, I can't go into your whole email unfortunately because it's just too long but the relevant points actually that I can drill into was when your mum was in a cubicle in the hot, in the, on a trolley in the A&D for five days um, and then she eventually got a bed and just the 5th of March last of course the COH went into lockdown at 6pm my husband and I and our three kids were up in the isolation ward with mum and we were told from 6pm there would be no visitors whatsoever I didn't think much of it I presumed given how sick mum was that I was her next to kin that I'd get a call I'd get in to see her no matter what but of course that wasn't the case uh, mum you know we were, she wasn't able to see her mum for a number of days mum needed to be helped to the toilet, she says, but no nurses were available to do it. There was no crutches, walking frames, no wheelchairs available. She waited long enough to go to the, to be helped, so she uh, was ringing the bell and ringing the bell. Nurses were helping a man with dementia at the time. So, and nurses say this actually, uh, that sometimes people who shouldn't go to the loo on their own do go to the loo on their own because they feel they can. Uh, anyway, my man made her own way to the toilet unaided. She had a brutal fall. And the nurse told me she was lying in her own pool of blood. They told me this on the phone. Mum fell on the 8th of March, burst the back of her head open at 10 p.m. And 9th of March, um, when I was told about this, I was frantic on the phone. I was eventually allowed to see her for an hour. It wasn't my mum who I saw. She never looked the same from that day on. The nurses were blaming the meds for her balance and for hallucinations. Uh, but it was down to the fact that she was at end of life. Uh, from that day onwards, I couldn't get in to see her. She would be brought down to reception some days, but then she would be sent. She would be brought down to reception some days, but then she would be sent away because her diabetes was dying. Anyway, a lot of this, unfortunately, I won't get time to go through. There were discussions at one stage about discharging her. Uh, the day she was due to go home, they rang to say that she was going via ambulance straight to Marymount. I was told that uh, no more could be done as my mum's body was no longer fighting. Uh, and I put it all down to the fall that she had in the COH. She went by ambulance to Marymount, knowing she most likely would never see her family again. Tears were streaming down her face. She was all alone in the ambulance. My mum's files stated she used used walking aids 24-7. was never a walking aid um, in her room. On the 20th of, Mar- of March, just gone, mum went into Marymount, where I got to spend time with her. I stayed all night at her side right through until Monday, the 23rd of March, when she gained her angel's wings. I will never forget the treatment my mother got or how she was treated by the CUH. I'm relieved now that she will never have to deal with them again. Thank you for taking time to read this. My heart goes out to those stories that were shared during the week. Back after the break. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. There's traffic issues uh, in Cars Hill again. This is a breakdown on Cars Hill in Douglas on the way to Ringeskiddy. Um, so be aware that you might have delays. Um, just in an unrelated matter, actually, I see issues aren't changing at the school gates at all. I've seen it with my own eyes, actually, but what can you do? Alan says, quick text, would you please tell mothers and fathers who are stopped constantly chatting outside the schools again this morning to keep moving? Just drop the kids, please, and go. It's the same people every morning, holding everyone up. Can't get our cars in, can't get our cars out, and then we're all being late. There's no social distancing at schools either. Sorry, can't come on air. I'm late for work again because of them. So thank you for all that. Uh, I had to write. Um, I'd, I had to write in while this is still on air. I'm not here to complain, but actually would like to um, say thank you for talking about the elderly care in Cork, particularly in the CUH. And that's how all this started. And I wanted to kind of 
make that point over and over and over again. It's not all aspects within a hospital scenario. The worry earlier in the week was the amount of people who had issues with the care of the elderly in certain wards within the CUH, like as if they weren't as important uh, as other people of different age groups. Uh, I don't think people, anyway, back to the email, I don't think people realise we're all getting older and we're all going to age and become elderly. We work hard and pay taxes for what? To be left in a trolley in the A&D for hours on end? It's so wrong elderly should be, it's so wrong elderly should actually be prioritised. I discharge myself regarding, I discharge myself disregarding the hospital concerns as I was genuinely so upset from seeing all of the elderly left idle in corridors, never ending, lined with trolleys in every corridor. I recall it was almost like a horror movie. We lost our gran about five years ago, seeing one particularly elderly woman mortified as she had soiled herself in a corridor on a trolley. How is this acceptable as elderly, retired, hardworking people, wiser than all of us? should be treated like this. Uh, you, sure, you are right to brought up this touchy subject on air. In Ireland, we struggle to talk about subjects that are controversial or hard to hear, when unfortunately these people are going through worse than what we have had to actually hear. They've experienced it. If it's hard to hear, imagine what it's like going through it. I was bawling, crying, listening to the woman talking about her terminal mother, the way she was treated. It cannot be tolerated. No one is calling out individuals. But something needs to be done. My mother works in the HSE. She is devoted. She loves her job. She has bad days and good days. But by God, she would never take it out on one of her patients, says Gwen. Um, listening as often as I can here from New York City, sad stories about our elderly care at the CUH. All those stories are true. And so is mine. My dad was a patient in the CUH geriatric in 2017. The care he received from some, not all of the staff, but some, was horrific to witness. He was terrified while he was there. Just one example, he had an injury to his arm which resulted in bad bruising. When I questioned what happened, the nurse told me he had hit his hand off the bedside locker. This was not possible as the locker was at the opposite side to the arm that was injured. We were harassed on a daily basis by the discharge coordinator to get my father out of the hospital because he was taking up a bed. If we didn't get him out, they were going to charge us €1,300 a day. My father worked hard all his life, paid his taxes, so was he not entitled to hospital care? For six weeks, we were not allowed to see him due to the vomiting bug, which was very distressing for both us and my dad. Thank God we were lucky to eventually get him into nursing, Farnley Nursing Home, where the staff were wonderful. My mother passed away unexpectedly last December. Uh, She was moved to the COH by ambulance, where she had to wait in the A&D for hours. She was screaming in pain and vomiting, and was admitted several hours later. She was then due to go for a scan, which was delayed and delayed and delayed. They discovered a blockage in her, to her bowel, and that her bowel had died. She then developed sepsis, and died the following day. It takes six hours for your bowel to die from lack of blood. My mother was waiting in the A&D from 3pm to 10pm. Her bowel was dying as she was waiting. She should have been attended much earlier, at the very least, if nothing else, to give her some pain medication. It was, to describe her treatment, inhumane. My sisters and I were there uh, with her when she passed, for which I'm very grateful. The nurse, nurses on my mum's ward were lovely, although as she was taking her final few breaths, a young nurse came in and put a stethoscope to my mum's chest and cheerily said, Ah, there's still a few gasps left, which left me stupefied at her lack of empathy. All in all, the general manager must be completely out of touch if he thinks all of these cases and stories are not true. Believe me, I would much rather 
I've had a positive experience for both my mother and father's care, but I didn't, and that's a fact. There are always a few bad apples in every walk of life, but when it comes to caring for our elderly, you must have compassion and genuine love for that job and the patients. And I admire those who work in that field, but when some of these people become jaded or lose empathy and patience, that results in treating the elderly badly. They should move on. That role is no longer fit for them. I know a number of friends whose elderly parents were treated badly during their time in the CUH, and the hospital needs to listen to those cases, take steps to make sure that this is not allowed to continue to happen. It's not okay, and the uncorroborated accounts that the manager says are in fact facts, as witnessed and told by family members. How much corroboration does the CEO need? He has a big problem on his hands. It is time for him now to resolve it. Keep up the good work. Terry O'Donovan, New York City, by email to neil at uh, redfm.ie. I will be moving on from this sooner or later, guys, probably sooner rather than later, because there's only so much time that I can stay on a particular topic, and um, I've stayed on it much longer than I had intended. As a consequence of that, not everybody's going to get on the air, unfortunately. John, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Okay, um, okay, it's a positive story. story. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Positive story. I just stand myself in 2015 in the CUH. Minor surgery, kept for three days. Everything was top class. The place was immaculate. Staff couldn't have been better to me. But my wife, two years ago, contracted breast cancer. And she's been in and out of the CUH ever since on a regular basis after numerous operations and the aftercare. And again, can't question the staff. There was, everything was fantastic. And um, again, the place is immaculate when you rave out there when we get to the ward, tea and coffee and the oncology wards and things. Just because nothing bad to say about them, Neil. Mm. This was an issue regarding the elderly. Um, I'm delighted that many other facets of the hospital are working so well. The problem would yeah. seem to be regarding geriatric care. Yeah, Neil, but it sounds like the whole hospital is getting slated, which I understand you keep saying that, but it sounds like the, the whole hospital. It just seems to be one unit that they have a problem with there with. The rest of the hospital seems to be running in top class, a top class hospital, you know. But uh, but is there some is there some sort of a philosophy or belief within hospital settings that the older you are, the less important you are? I don't know, Neil. I well, um, that's the impression yeah, I'm getting from all of these calls. You can't be sh- you know you can't be shouting at people. Oh, I understand that, Neil. I get a mother and, and a sister went through Marymount in the last two years that passed away outside now, and again their care and the the day got was only top class and with the staff out there and, and everything. So, so I don't know, it, it's, I suppose nothing is perfect in life, is it really? Uh, yeah, but that doesn't make it right for people who have worked oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah. As you said, it's, it's people fall through the cracks, Neil. Uh, it's unlucky, but I think that the, most of the people staying in, in our CUH hospital is very positive and from what I'm getting out of it. Okay, okay. Thank you for that, John. That's good to hear. Bear in mind, the issues were with regards to care of the elderly, in particular wards that did this. This was not people having a general swipe or a moaning mini about the entire hospital. Uh, Fred, thank you for that. Uh, actually, it is Fred, isn't it? Fred, um, CUH saved I, your daughter's life. Is that right? Yeah, they did twice, actually. Twice. Yeah, my daughter was... Um Having a baby and uh, the placenta grew through the wall of her womb onto her organs and she was in the hospital of maternity from uh, early on August until October, until the baby was born. And 
Yeah, I couldn't say no from they saved her life because she was in the theatre for 16 hours and she was on a life support machine for another few days. And um, while she was there, we had the baby. Uh, she couldn't lift the baby or anything. And they allowed her out for a day. I brought her down to our house in Clan to our uh, uh, daughter's uh, birthday. And while we were down there, she hemorrhaged. And uh, we had to get uh, Garda escort back to the COH. And I couldn't say enough. Mm-hmm. My daughter is back teaching again and her baby is perfect, thank God. Okay. You've had a lot of experiences in hospitals. Your dad in the, in the CUH, your mother in St. Finbar's, and sadly your own wife passed away in the bonds, isn't that right? That's right. I couldn't say enough for the bonds either. I couldn't say enough. You know, I, even though if I had to go to a hospital in the morning, I wouldn't be going to the bonds. On account of that, I was in hospital um, in the matter, and I couldn't say enough for them also. Why wouldn't you go to the bonds? Is there a reason? There is, yeah. My wife died there, so I couldn't, I, ah, I couldn't go yeah. back in there. I understand, Mr. I Fletcher. never went back in there. I know. It's too upsetting for you. Okay. Yeah. And if there was yeah. a nurse's strike in the morning, you'd pick it with them? Oh, I would, yeah. I would. I think they're brilliant. Fantastic. I had another daughter that had breast cancer, and she's fine, thank God, and the 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 aftercare is brilliant. I must say that. Okay. And I I have no connection with uh, CUH. I don't know anybody there. I'm only speaking from my own experience. Okay, okay. Thank you for that. As always, Fred. I, lovely yeah, to talk I to do you. Think, mm. I do think I do think the CEO should come online and and defend it. Well, I, I got a I got a statement yesterday. Yeah, you, did, up. you see, you see, this is about the again. Am I like a scratch record? This is about the families and and relations talking about the care of the elderly. Uh, I don't think they use the term geriatric patients anymore, but you know what I'm talking about. Where well, my 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 mom was seventy and my dad was seventy two, and the care they got was next to none. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Much obliged, Fred. I've been listening to your show uh, the last couple of days about hospital care. My father was attending the Mercy Hospital for a period of a year and a half with a serious illness. His care was awful. Uh, This is in the Mercy. The nurses were rude and treated him more like an object than a person. The place was very unhygienic. He fell there, got sepsis in there twice, and eventually we took him home. On the day he went home, uh, I waited four hours for them to get a wheelchair. Uh, we were ta- we were taking him home to die. Um, and they laughed and drank tea while we sat in the room next door crying. Eventually, I got so cross, I went to get the wheelchair myself. And the nurse ran down after me and said, you can't take that. She took one look at my face and then stepped aside. He eventually went to Marymount and he died there. The care in Marymount was excellent. The nurses were so experienced and the place is spotless. My mother-in-law died in the CUH after a battle with cancer last year. She was 58. I found the care and the cleanliness better in the CUH than the Mercy, but I found the nurses to be cold and uncaring. She had a good thing. She had good things to say about the nurses when she was getting her initial treatment, but when there was no hope left for her, her treatment was, to describe it, poor. She spent about 10 days in the hospital and passed away. When we arrived in the morning, she would be crying out, saying no one came back near her during the night. We would stay until about 3 a.m. and come back at 8 a.m., During this time, she would say no one came in. She would grab your hand crying and say, don't leave me with them. They wouldn't take her to the bathroom when she wanted. Eventually, they put her in nappies. I think think that's the incorrect term. I think it's incontinence pads. Uh, But anyway, I know what you're saying. And they said she was too heavy to lift. 
because they put the pads on instead. If there was no available, no one available to lift her, she couldn't go to the toilet as she was, she was heavy. They wanted her sons to take her to the toilet. It was horrific. She had stomach cancer and was hemorrhaging every time she went. They were good, th- they, they were good there in that they let us come and go. But I just felt they spent most of the time filling in charts and writing things down rather than dealing with people. I cried so much this week listening to those stories. I hate to think about what my dad and mother-in-law went through in there. We did complain many times regarding, say, my dad's treatment, but we got nowhere. And when we complained, it only made things worse for him. My dad said they sent, they spent most of their time drinking tea and chatting, especially at night. I would rather do anything than attend a hospital. My father was a very quiet man. He would never complain, but his dignity was certainly taken from him. He had insurance and received private care. His bill was over €100,000 by the time he passed away. I worry about the care older people are receiving, especially now that families can't keep an eye on them. All families should be aware. Please keep the stories on air, then something might eventually be done. Love the show. Listen every morning. Don't give out my details. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Uh, Neil, I'm absolutely fuming at your coverage of geriatric care in the CUH this week. You have twisted and put words into callers' mouths. So those nurses are lovely, caring, kind, hardworking angels who looked after both my grandmothers in the past. You don't have any medical degree or background. Before you ask, yes, I do have a medical degree, Neil. Who do you think you are commenting on medication and individual cases? Geriatric care is complex. It is a vocation. Have you thought about the stress and upset you will cause to the staff in the wards who are doing their best? Maybe staffing levels are an issue, and that's what you should be highlighting. Your your work, you work, you work a day as a staff member on the likes of the wards like 1A and then come back with your experience from other side. I'm not listening to your show every again, ever again. It was totally twisted and one-sided. Also, I will not be coming on air and giving you another minute of my time. So, okay, thank you for that text. You probably don't know that I actually read your text out because you're not listening anymore and that's unfortunate. Um, but then again, I am only a facilitator. I have never, I have not told one single story that is relevant or personal to my, oh, apart from my son's Excellent treatment in the A&E when he went in there with a kick in the head in a rugby match. Other than that, I've just allowed others to share their stories. How I can twist what people are saying beyond me when the words come out of their own mouth. But there you go. You're as entitled to your opinion as everybody else, even though you're not around to hear it being read out. Um, a similar experience. My dad, my, my dad is, he, he died almost four years ago at the age of 69. It was surreal. He went in with back pain even though they sent him out home three times. On the last occasion, we insisted to be kept in for treatment because he was in constant agony. He'd lost two stone in a matter of weeks. He was 69. He never made it home. Also, one night he fell on his way to the bathroom. He was very badly bruised. No one mentioned anything of this to us. We asked the staff about it when we saw the bruises while changing his T-shirt, and the nurses just brushed it off. Most of the staff were amazing, but some of the very young nurses could not have cared less. There was one lady in particular who was a healthcare assistant and she was fantastic with my father. He developed a fierce fondness towards her. At the very end, when we couldn't get through get through to him because he was unconscious, she always managed to bring him back to us because they had this amazing bond. She did say she reminded him a lot of her own father. Herself and a couple of the nurses even came to his funeral. Wow. We were so grateful for that. It's worth repeating. Herself and some of the nurses came to his funeral. We were shocked at how quickly he deteriorated before our eyes. 
But one doctor in particular spoke to him like he was just a number. Cold, horrible. Whenever we asked about his father, he gave us no information as to our father's state at the time. When we challenged him on this, he didn't like it. Whatever medication they put my dad on, he started losing his senses within days. He just turned into someone with dementia. He hardly knew us some days. It was hard to watch. He wanted to go home, but we thought he was in the best place. That was a big mistake, and we regret it to this day. I want to reiterate that most of the staff were amazing and so caring, but a handful of staff shouldn't be there at all because they obviously hate their jobs. They give the rest of the nurses a bad name, you see. Their work really is a vocation and you have to be naturally kind, caring person to do it continuously. Unfortunately, some aren't cut out for it and these minorities should be replaced. I know how difficult it must be for staff and a lot of them are burned out. But these are our our family members. I heard so many similar stories from family members of loved ones that have passed away in the CUH under awful circumstances. It's just not good enough. Something must now be done. Maybe your program will make that difference. Uh, Says Sharon by email uh, to Neil at redfm.ie. I am starting to see, thankfully, um, a lot more positive stories coming in. Now, bear in mind, the positive stories, unfortunately, are from different parts of the hospital, but they're positive nonetheless. Niamh, good morning. Hi, how are you, Niamh? Good. Tell me about your little wee young fella. Um, my young fella is uh, six, and he was born with esophageal atresia. He was born with a wide gap in his esophagus. Okay. And they copped on in the COMH two weeks before he was due. And when he was born, he was took straight to Temple Street, and he had to spend six... Uh, 13 weeks in Temple Street in a ICU and he never met his brother so the CUMH brought him back down and in fairness to Dr Murray and her team she went off and got the ladybird um, war trained up on how to do his peg because he has a Mickey button and not many people have Mickey buttons so she went away and she got all the nurses Mickey Mouse uh, button is that what you're referring to? Yeah it's called the Mickey button it's actually a feeding tube it's a button in his belly Yeah so you open it and you feed him through that and she made all the nurses and all the nurses went away and they got trained up on it and they got trained up on a tube he had in his nose to help him breathe and take the saliva out of his uh, mouth so it wouldn't go down his uh, esophagus and he was able to come down to the COH for a month and a half to meet his brother and spend Christmas with his whole family and they made us welcome and everything and then when he goes to Temp- when he went to Temple Street in January he got an operation and two nurses we couldn't get an ambulance on the road the ambulance would only go as far as Tipperary or Limerick and it wouldn't come as far as Dublin because they'd get called off the road and in fairness to um, two nurses they, uh, and Carol Lynch and they travelled with one patient they made their own way to Tipperary and then they went to Limerick with one patient and they got in the ambulance with that patient and they travelled to Dublin to charge that patient in Vincent and they came to Temple Street to bring us home. Yeah, it's fabulous, isn't it? It's it's great yeah. to have um, you I know have, stories and I'm delighted that you shared it like because, you know... Yeah, and still we, to this day, like he got, he's in the hospital all the time and he's not in that ward anymore. Like a couple of months ago, he attracted pneumonia because he's, he's, he can eat small food and if food gets stuck, it goes into his windpipe and he contracted uh, ammonia. And I have to say, the nurses fell all over him. And I have to say, nine out of ten nurses are just brilliant and it's always 
unfortunately, it only ever takes one person to make things go bad for everyone. I, I would say that probably some of the hardest work being done is either with the yeah. very young or the very old. Um, and uh, great experiences with your son and others with, with children and what have you. But much of the criticism has been those that are elderly or elderly and terminal or dementia yeah. patients, uh, people who need extra well, care I and have, attention. I have a heart problem and I spend a lot of time in there with my heart and I have to say they looked after me through the coronavirus and the lockdown and I had a dad that had bowel cancer and they clocked on very late and they ran with him and the nurses couldn't have been nicer and helped him with his recovery as well. Super, super stuff. Well yeah. said. Thank you for all that. How is how is your yeah, son? You must have to give him fierce care and attention. You must need um, to watch him like waiting, a hawk. Um, he's waiting for another operation. He's due to go to Temple Street in two weeks' time. All right. Good luck with that. Stay in touch. Thanks, Thanks for that, very much. Well all said. Right. Cheers. Rona, good morning. Hi, how are you doing? How good. Are what have you got for me? Um, um, I tell you, I have experience with, I had a baby back in February, February 1st, and she had some breathing difficulties, so she was transferred up to Crumlin, and she was discharged. So when she was a week old, uh, we noticed her, she was breathing 100 breaths a minute. So I rang Amy, they said, bring her straight in. We were literally walked through the doors straight into the back. She was hooked up to monitors and they admitted her straight away. Her oxygen levels were quite low. Um, then she was brought up to Ladybird and they were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant with us up there. They were brilliant with her. Uh, so then she had to be transferred back up to Crumlin. Um, so she actually ended up having a, a pretty rare heart condition. Uh, so she got the surgery up there, but we went back down to Ladybird for kind of feeding issues. And again, I couldn't sing their praises enough. They were All very right. good. Good, good, good. Um, and then even a couple of weeks ago, she got a distended stomach, uh, brought her up to A&E and I'd say within two hours she had an echo and all and they were, they were just excellent up there to be honest. <laughs> little Baby Paige. Yeah, Little Paige. <laughs> it's a lovely name, isn't it? It is, it is, yeah. They said they hadn't seen it in a while. <laughs> where did you come up with Is it in the family or do you just like the name Paige? No, we we both like the name so we were kind of humming and hawing between Paige or Amy and we... Be, uh, agreed on page in the end. She's a page, is she? She's not an Amy. She's a page. <laughs> no, she's not. A, she's not an Amy. <laughs> <sighs> Lovely stuff. But they were absolutely excellent up there. Thanks for that. And Much obliged. Yeah. To you. Well done. Thank you, Rona. Um, please, you see, you're damned if you do, if and you're damned if you don't. Why are you focusing? Why aren't you focusing on the real story? from earlier in the week, that of geriatric care. Why do we have to listen to the positive stories about children? That is not what our area of heartbreak is all about. So there's another text, 0868-104-106. Please do not dilute the horrors of what our elderly have been suffering by talking about positive stories in hospitals regarding children. We need justice. Okay. I'm trying to do the best I can, guys. I'm trying to keep it all together and on track. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM. I'm a staff nurse in the bonds. I'm really upset to hear the nurses being slated so badly. I totally agree. Very few select nurses are not made for the job. But the majority of nurses give the very best care they can possibly do under the absolute dire staffing situations happening right now. Management, it's management need to be investigated in every hospital, as it seems to be the same trend occurring. The core nursing staff are not the root of the problem, in my opinion. We are doing our absolute best. I do not commend any of the horror stories I've heard, and I really hope this can be sorted as soon as possible. It breaks my heart to hear these stories. People need to understand 
that nurses work very hard. Uh, morning, can people stop pestering the nurses? They're only following the healthcare regulations that are outlined and the healthcare regulations that are inhumane. The doctors, specialists and healthcare system are the real issue. It isn't the nurses. I know this because of experiences I've had firsthand in the MUH. It is crazy how people are talking about nurses. I would like to know the other side of these stories. Do you not believe them? I mean, do you think people just come on the air and just make things up? And my husband was in COH where he died 12 years ago from a brain hemorrhage. There was a night nurse who was a real bully in there and they didn't want anyone staying at night. And me being quiet natured, I left to get away with this carry on. My husband died on his own because of it. It made me very ill that I didn't speak up to the nurse at the time. My doctor said there was no need in punishing myself as I could not change what happened but to this day, the experience still haunts me, uh, says Julie, uh, by text to 0868104106. I've got about two minutes. I don't know whether that would do justice to Mick, but I can certainly come back uh, after 11. Mick, good morning. Morning, Neil. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Um, and again, if I haven't time, I'll come back to you. But your, your, bro- your brother passed away in the CUH? Yes, uh, Neil, my brother passed away there 22 years ago, 1998, you know. And the hospital opened in 1978. That's which right. was the reason at that time. Yeah. But uh, my experience there really was uh, not complaining about the nurses now really, but as uh, administration, you know. And um, when I brought my brother up there, he was 47 years of age. He'd be dead now. 22 years next Monday, this Monday coming. But, you know, when uh, I went up there and he had crashed the place to get him in and I got him in, he'd cancelled one lung. And, um, of course, when he went up to the ward... The staff nurse says, have you a phone number? I said, yes, this is my phone number. She said, you know, he's coming out the back door. He won't be coming out the front door. Say, grand. Um, what, do you, what, what do you mean, grand? What, what, she, he, he, like, she told me that he was going to die, like. But she didn't say it like that, though. Oh, she did, yeah. The staff nurse told me. She said, you know, he, your brother has pneumonia. So he won't be coming out the front, going out that front door. She said he's going out the back door. <sighs> so I said, okay. I know that, I said. So I said, uh, what's the time? She said, about two weeks' time. It could be this week. So I said, that's fine. Now I said, she said, what, what's the phone number? I said, I gave her my phone number, the landline. I said, what are we doing? I said, ring that number when you know that I'll be there at the whole this family's going, you know, if I can. I said, oh, that'll be grand. There's no problem there, she said. So that was fine, Neil. The time came up just two weeks afterwards. And um, it was a Thursday now, like today, and my father rang me because he was 85 and very fit man. But I didn't want him to know, like, he didn't know that my brother was dying, you know. And um, I, Dad rang me and he says, yeah, you know, he's gone out at ward. About from three years, he's gone. I went into the ward and he's gone out of there. So, yeah, I'd be going up there. I said, Dad, at four o'clock. I went up there at four o'clock with his, his shaving gear to shave him. And um, he wasn't in the ward, of course, as Dad said. So I went up and down the corridor, Neil, and, you know, I, I couldn't find him. So see this lady doctor running up the, the corridor, and she went into this little small ward on the left-hand side of the tree. And I said, there's something going on in there, something for the popping off. They know it was my brother. <laughs> I came back up. And I said, I opened the door and I said, hey, do you know where Eddie Murphy be at all, my brother? Oh, come in quick, he's popping, he's going, he's going, he's going fast. 
found in there was three nurses in there with this big woman in the apron around her. And um, Jesus said, what's happening? So the, the story, I had been knee like that. I just got there in time. Mm. She said, quick, hold his hand, he's going. And there was a fan blowing away. And, and uh, he was faced out. They were holding his hands on mm. the nurses. And I said, don't go at all, Eddie. And she, the, the big matron kind of a staff nurse, she said, oh, let him go, let him go, tell him to go. So I said, Eddie, go to Jesus. Mm. And he went, he took the last breath. I stopped crying. And you know, with the excitement, the locker broke open next to his bed. And there was a crucifix and a load of half a candle burned out. So I said to the nurse, what, what's all these things on the floor? She said, this is the death ward. Single room. So when she rang me, uh, we, she, we shifted them in here at one o'clock to the death ward. You know? So I said, Jesus. So when she rang me, I said, I, I could be there to hold his hand. At the stage, now there was two nurses and they were boring their eyes out. So you want me to the apron around her, big heavy kind of nurse-like. She said, um, look, go on away, go down there, and we have a cup of tea, we'll look after you. And uh, we'll come back in the normal, we'll have them nicely fixed up for you. Mm. I said, why did you not ring my number? Mm. And she said, um, oh, we're very busy now, she said. So I thought it was a terrible knee, like, you know, they should have said that he's gone into the death ward. So that's up in 3E on the I left know, hand side. I know, I know. God, thank God you got there right at the end, though. It could have been, yes, it was, end, it it was bad, but it could have been a hell of a lot worse for you. you yes, know? but the, the, the point I'm making is, yeah. it's administration, like the staff nurse should have rang me yeah. at 1 o'clock. To be said, there, yeah. He's yeah. gone off to the, another ward. You need to sit with the dead ward. Time to come up now, and we'll chat with you when you get here. Yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, just to come up to hold his hand, because he's right. going to pop off, you know? All right, okay. All right, thanks so much. Thanks, mate. That's back in the 98, like, so things don't change much, like. All right, pal. Thank you, and uh, condolences on the loss of your wonderful brother, Eddie. Back after 11 and one 104, 106. 104 to 106. Red FM. This is the Neil Frienderville Show. Uh, right, for those of you that uh, think that it's um, uh, something that uh, is way too over the top or hard listening, um, we will be mixing it up, and tomorrow uh, we'll be doing this and many other t- topics of conversation, and then I won't be around for a couple of weeks, so you'll have a break from me, so some of you will at least be happy with that. Not too many of you, I hope. I hope that when I'm ultimately gone, uh, that at least I'll be missed by some. Uh, just listening to read out an email from a nurse who says you're wrong. Um, you're in the wrong for speaking on these cases and the nurse disagreeing with you. I think she has a very ignorant point of view. The stories and the callers you're putting on air are real people who live through these issues and have seen the problems and lack of care firsthand. Firsthand. They are their family stories. How can she possibly slate you for giving these people airtime? I know some are great. Some nurses are absolutely fantastic. But unfortunately, having a handful of bad nurses is a handful too much. These are people's lives. And if one older patient is at the hands of a bad nurse and treated badly, it's one too many. No one deserves to be left soiled, left to fall due to not being answered when ringing a bell. Again, nurses are fantastic, and I know from neonatal that they're amazing, but that's with small babies. The treatment of older people is what you were talking about, and that is a different story. If you can't give people the respect and care they deserve, then get a job somewhere else. I hope all of this shines a light on the issue 
and that it makes a difference in the end. It's well and good to say that areas are fantastic in the hospital. The issues that need to be aired are negative, not positive at the moment in time. Why praise the good nurses and keep hush-hush about the negative stories? Not one single person should be treated badly. End of. By email to Neil at redfm.ie. Listening all week, I just had to text the show. I'm heartbroken and infuriated. The nurse is writing in to your show and complaining about it all being unfair to air all these negative stories. They're actually part of the problem. And their defensive attitude is proof that there is a problem. There shouldn't need to be positive stories. That that should just be expected as standard. Elderly patients being treated with dignity, compassion and respect should be the norm. My heart broke listening to poor Phil who started this on Monday and she was so upset on the air. CUH should be ashamed of themselves. There's nothing to excuse or pardon that treatment. Even if it were one isolated case, it's one too many. But it is clearly a major problem. Needs to be addressed and not defensively dismissed as these nurses are trying to do. Thanks for your work. My father-in-law was not an easy person to deal with, but the Mercy Hospital nurses were amazing. Uh, He was in there very often over the last three years. I never met a nurse that wasn't amazing. And I was in the family contact. I was the family contact person for him. Please tell people the staff who work in the male wards in the Mercy are amazing. They deserve a pay rise. My father-in-law has passed away since. And one final one for now. I discharged myself from hospital once and disregarded the nurses and the doctor's concerns as I was genuinely so upset from seeing all the elderly left idle in corridors. It was never ending. They were lined up in trolleys in every corridor of that hospital. I recall it almost like a horror movie. We lost our grand five years ago. I remember seeing one particularly elderly woman at the time who was mortified. She had soiled herself in the corridor on a trolley. How is it acceptable that the elderly who are retired, having been hardworking and wise beyond us, are being treated like this? You need to talk about this touchy subject on air. In Ireland, we struggle to talk about subjects that are controversial or hard to hear, when unfortunately these people are going through worse than what we have had to hear in the first place. Uh, if it was also hard to hear about these stories, can you imagine what people are actually going through? We only have to hear the story. Listening to the lack of criticism on, listening to the criticism on care in our hospitals for the past number of days, as an ex-nurse, the one thing that seems to resound through these awful stories is the burnout and the lack of staff. There's also a lack of communication. Geriatric medicine and nursing needs geriatric qualified staff. Nurses over the years have, un, have been on numerous occasions trying to highlight the lack of staff and overcrowding. The public passed by without a hoot, with the hoot of a horn. Um, these people were able to fight against the water charges, but they didn't fight for the healthcare service. And that's from an ex-nurse. Okay. And there are many like that. And uh, I hope to have an opportunity to um, maybe read some of them out. I'll maybe, you know, spice it over the next day or two and then... I'm not sure what Mick Mulcahy will do when he's here on air, but perhaps there'll be an opportunity then as well. Um, Dave, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How's things? Oh, well, 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 well. You were in the Mercy, wasn't it? You're in and out, oh, all, yeah. the t- you're in and out all the time, aren't you? Well, I'm going to the Mercy Hospital and it's uh, 33 years every year, every, without missing a year. How's like it been my, going for you? My summer holidays, like, instead of going to Spain, I'd be going to hospital every year. That'd, that'd be my summer holidays. Okay, because it's a chronic lung condition, so you need to be particularly careful at this time, don't you? Well, and in the last two or three years, like, when I go in, I actually have to have a room of my own because 
I did get MRSA a number of years ago, so up to for fifteen years I I'd be like I'd be spending um time in the ward with four or five men and uh and I had plenty of experience of all that like but the last is I was in he came out there two weeks ago, I was in a room my own and last year as well. But like coming across uh, I mean it, it is very harrowing to listen to the story since Monday morning. And uh, I have no doubt that what what people saw and what people said is true. But um as one year one year other calls there in the last hour kinda of said that it's kind of coming across like as if the COH is um, it's uh, it's been uh, it's been dealt a hammer blow right through the whole hospital. But um, I mean, if well, were, if that's the case, that unfortunately people are only yeah. getting to listen from time to time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, if, if you were to send her daughter home and you were an elderly mother or father sick, you'd be kind of saying, "My God, I'm not going, I'm not going to COH." That's the kind of you you you'll be thinking that bit. But like, well, I, that's a decision I, they'll have to make themselves on yeah. the basis of the stories that people are hearing. Either either that, or we don't have radio programs like this. Oh, or yeah, we give yeah, out yeah. we give out recipes or knitting patterns. I don't mind. We get somebody else. Like I'll I'll bail out. I don't care. I mean, you said like people are saying that you're scaremongering. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, you have to hide if if it's going. I mean, as you said earlier on yourself. The fact that it's been highlighted might help things and improve things in the, over the next couple of months. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, well, um, but, well, but, 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 but I will. I will say, like, I, I mean, only for only for the hospital and the Northern primary. I was in I was in an Northern primary every year for seven years before the mercy, and the Northern primary saved my life because I had bowel cancer and I had a huge operation, and then I developed my lung problem after that, and I've been going to the mercy for thirty three years since. So, but only for the hospitals, I wouldn't be. I would be talking to you on the phone right now. Only for only for the mercy hospital and Northern primary, but like the nurses, I will say. Um, like the nurses start the morning shift they're, they're kind of on duty about quarter to eight and they finish at half past eight at night that's nearly 13 hours and um, and a lot of them are living in the country I know some of them are living down in Ross Carberry some of them are living in Mitchellstown mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be home until 10 they wouldn't be home at night until 10 and a half it's like mm-hmm. 10 o'clock so it's a long day and it's kind of you know um, maybe you should say they, they shouldn't be living in the no, I'm not saying that. No, no, I wouldn't allow that. Yeah, I mean, that's not that's not what this is about. This is about this is about the care of the yeah. elderly, those that cannot mind themselves. No, I come back to a few points that were made since Monday. Um, like you said, patients, their dinner is put in front of them, and they can't feed themselves, and it's left there. And then the, the attendant will come along half an hour later and take it back to the kitchen. No, that can happen. But what my point about that is, I mean, if if they were getting, if their breakfast was brought along to them in the morning, and they weren't able to feed themselves, and it was taken away, and then dinner, and then maybe the tea in the evening, and they weren't eating nothing, sure, Neil, that could not be allowed to go on because sure, in a couple of days he'd be starved to death. That's right, that's right. That's but I don't think that that is an issue there. I don't think that nurses are there to feed patients. That's the job oh. of a care assistant. And if there aren't enough of those, it all goes back ultimately to hospital management. Um, to the, to do you ever see a, like an iceberg, yeah. right? Where where the bottom, where the tip of the iceberg is the one above the water. That's probably the frontline care staff, you know. Yeah, like, nurses, I mean, doctors, care assistants. The big bit under the water then is the rest of the HSE. And and who's jo- like? I mean, as you said, it's, um, it, it's probably more than likely a job of the care assistant. Uh, are they trained to feed the people? Now, supposing there's in a geriatric ward, supposing there's five patients in there and three of them can't feed themselves. And dinner comes in. 
I mean, there's only one KO system, maybe two. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I, don't know. I mean, it's, it's going to take an hour to feed someone at their dinner. Um, like, I asked one wall to attend one night in the Mercy Hospital at, uh, when it was kind of quiet. I said, like, b- besides giving me my food and whatever, what are the work when the patients are asleep at night in bed at one o'clock in the morning? What do you do for all night? Like, what? What is it? They have loads of work to do. He list, call out a list of stuff that he, it's, it's not just feeding patients. He said he had writing to do, and he had, I can't remember now exactly, but he said he had a lot of stuff to do between 12 o'clock at night and 8 o'clock in the morning. Okay, okay. So they have, have a lot of work all right. to do, you know? Okay, thanks, David. Appreciate it. Um, uh, Marty. Hello there, this is Marty O'Mahony. Okay, the, the, lads had a, the lads had a chat with you, so I'm quite sure that they've um, tipped you off as to where we're going with oh, this conversation. Oh, yeah, I yeah. won't say yeah, like, okay. nothing that will get you into trouble. Um, I, I'm talking about care homes, three care homes that I was in because I had an operation in my stomach and I was given up. I was given up twice for this. But anyway, in the care, uh, uh, in you're, the you're care in what you're in a nursing home now, I believe, are you? I, I am. All right, that's uh, fine. Okay, so okay. I don't have to tell the name. Of no, the no, county. absolutely, no. It's fine. I mean, just, just, just uh, bear with me. You, I yeah. thought you, I thought you had a, you had a couple of heart attacks, did you? Well, uh, first, uh, the, 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 the first three care homes I'm talking about. The first one, I got nothing but abuse and blackguarding from them for no reason at all. No reason at all. But I also saw a 95-year-old woman being abused five times. She was lifted off the air and cleaned up into the air, and she was brought back over the back of it by another resident man. And they knew it was going on. And it happened the second time, and it happened the third time. And the poor woman, she was well able to walk and every whole thing. He frightened the living daylights out of her. Then he had a window sill that he used to claim that that was his will. And she was sitting there, she didn't know that. And he tore her off of that and he threatened her with one of those metal walking sticks, you know, that has the prong sticky out at the end of it. Do you know him? Uh, yeah, so she was a 95-year-old woman who was being... 95-year-old woman. I don't know her, no. So, but what you so witnessed, was this woman being abused or being moved or being shouted at or hit by another patient? Or, no, she, it, it, it was being done by another patient. Okay. That okay. he was a right tug of a black hair. Okay. And uh, on, on the fifth time, he, she was sitting on the wind and he tore her off it. And he went after her and he thought or he split her skull open with this metal thing. And she ran into a corner and she was sitting there. And I was on a wheelchair and I went over. And just as it was coming down on her head, I grabbed it with my right hand and wouldn't let it go. And she cried her heart out for, a, for, 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 an, hour, for an hour after that. And um, can you get me? Yeah. Yeah. Did you say it to anybody? So that was the abuse. Did you say that to did you did you say that to anybody that this was happening? Oh, to they them? were looking on. There was members of the staff looking on, and uh, they're not here about it. So to move from from that case, and I was being abused verbally, which you know after what I was after being told, I was deliberately come. They'd come into my room and they'd keep 
go on to know, in other words, they didn't care if I thought, but I have to take. And that was there. So I moved to... What do you mean, like, uh, you're 74 years old in various nursing homes, witness to another relative, another nursing home residence at the age of 95? I was 74 years old and she was 95. Okay, but what, when you say, what what do you mean by you were abused? You mean that you were spoken badly to, is it? Oh yeah, they'd just come in and give out to me maybe for a half an hour or an hour, roaring like Ian Paisley. Staff, is it? Yeah. Sure, yeah, why would they yeah. want to waste an hour of their time shouting at you? Like, that's oh, I'm telling you the gospel truth. Because, you see, when you will speak up inside one of their care homes, they want you out. You know, once you're an informer and that you'll tell about anything, they want you out. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so a doctor advised me, to leave the place. So I left the place and I went to another care home in another county. And uh, I was getting along there fine until I see other things that was going on. And um, to tell you the truth, I think myself, it's just my opinion, that HICWA are not up to their job at all. Because the reason I will tell you why is that they inspected the first care home, I said, where the old woman was. Mm. Uh, two men, and they spent most of the day there. And they came out with, with nothing, all smiles, not knowing anything. And when I wrote, uh, told them, uh, when I had left that care home, they went down there and they found 28 fire doors disconnected and a wedge to a corridor that if a fire broke out, we were born to a cinder. Yeah. And they found 35 pages of falls of everything you could think of. It was on the newspapers and the radio, RTE and the full lot. Then I was in the, the second care home I went to. And what do you think was there after a while? Uh, there was 52 fire doors disconnected for five months and there was nurses gloves over some of the sensors about seven sensors they said they put them up because so that the paint wouldn't or glue wouldn't set them off now I reported that twice to Hikwa in Cork, the Cork number 021 and I told them there's 52 fire doors disconnected here, and if a fire breaks out, and there was, I was in the upstairs, and you can't, uh, the thing that you go down, what you could lift, I said, we can't go down in that. Okay. But I said, we would be burned to okay. a cinder. Okay. And in no time did they come down, and they only had to drive down from Cork, and they'd have seen it under their eyes. And where are you now? I'm in a care home now. And how's that going? Well, I'll tell you how I became here is that it had a long story. When they were giving me out, out to me below in the second care home that I was in, I got a terrible bad pain in my chest from they giving out all night long, one of them, a nurse. 
and she was all right tugging with one because I saw her drunk hauling an old man along the floor on six occasions. I know you, I mean, it's, see, I'm, I'm hearing you say these things and uh, I have no proof that what you're telling me is the truth. I don't know what meds you've been on or anything, you see. So I'm kind of oh, at no, a loss to know it, whether oh, you imagined it or saw it. Oh, God Almighty, not at all, not at all. No, no, I can, I can remember... Uh, going back, going back to when I was an infant. Right. My memory is under. But anyway, um, no, everything is a truth. I, I won't tell one lady. I wouldn't do that. You see, that's and, but that's very frightening for people to hear that there would be a care home where a staff member is dragging an elderly person along the ground. Oh yes, yes, the poor you man. Know had been, he had been suffering from depression, and he got no sleep for about a week, and he was crying, and he was laying on his bed on the floor. She tried my lung. Six attempts brought him and another terror and then looking on. And, you said uh, what's go- you said what has gone on in the care homes is awful. If I had known what was wrong, um what was you know, in the care homes, I would have stayed at home to die. Oh yes I would. And I would have rather that people that came in to me that rather than come in and give you out to me, that they would have come in with a double barrel shotgun and blown my head off. It would be ah, more come humane. on, no, not fair. No, as uh, Jesus, I swear to God, there's things. Look, this is the night laundries of the present day. People didn't believe what was done in the Magdalen laundry, but it did go on. And um, to tell you the truth, in uh, how they they wanted me out of it because since I was giving information, yeah, and yeah. and then how to get me out of it? You'd never believe. They taught me that um, I could be a phantom patient, and that I would have to go up to a certain doctor in Cork. That he was overall that area, like the monster area, a head doctor, and I went up and. Never knowing that I was bringing two letters, the fell in the ambulance and the letters. And one of them was that my memory was gone. And the other one was that I was hitting out at people. And he said, he looked at the letters and he said, the one from the doctors and the one from the people in the care home are both word for word. And I never liked that, he says. And he says, it's here that you're a bit that your memory is gone. And he asked me three times, are you sure of your your name and your age? And I said, I was born on Sunday, the 7th of April, 1946. I said, your memory isn't gone. Mm. Mm. So again, look, and examine yourself and he asked me what I draw a clock for him. You're breaking up on me, Marty. The phone line is starting to go. But I I keep going because it's a really good story. So anyway, then... I said, if you think my memory is gone, I'll give you the full history of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And I gave him the full plot and the day and the date. All right. I accept, I accept that your memory is sharp as a pin. I shall yeah. accept that. And then I, what they sent me up there was to deliver the letters that would nail myself. Do you understand? Yeah. Yeah. And where and you're now in a third, you're now in a third care home. Yeah. yeah. But the final way, then, they, they, they told me, a doctor came in to me, a lady doctor, at two o'clock in the day, and she told me, your hemoglobin level has gone down from 15 to 13, 
and it's a full emergency, you will have to go to court. And I said to her, well, I feel fine. And she was, I knew she was acting like an actress. I knew it was lies she was telling. And she said, this is a full-scale emergency to go. I said to her, okay. And where did you go? No, I'm just conscious of time now, unfortunately. Oh, okay, okay. Where did you go? I go as quick as I can. I went up to the COH the following morning. She wanted me to go that mean I was crying all night worrying about that the full emergency. And I, I, when, I wondered when the ambulance was, crowd came in, they were in no hurry. And it's supposed to be an emergency. So when I went up there, I couldn't praise them enough. This is a CUH. Okay. So I'm telling the truth about the treatment I got up there. Okay. Okay. And um, when I went up there, they said to me, uh, he examined me, he was waiting at the door, and he examined me, and he said, Tortine is in no danger at all. We would only worry when it was down to 10. Okay. And he says, even at 8, you would be safe. Okay, they, you, you believe they wanted you out, but you're in a third one now. Are you, some, are you, somewhat, happy, are you somewhat happier there? Yeah, okay. and he, he came along then, and he said, there's something going wrong on here, but I don't know what. So five minutes after, uh, this woman came up and she said, you're going to be sent to a hospital in Limerick. And then we knew why I was sent up supposed to be an emergency. And she said, I'm going to do everything to stop you from being transferred to Limerick. And then there was a, a head man up there, he was a lovely man, and he came down to me and he had a pinstripe suit and he says, I'll tell you the truth. If the crowd in that care home, he says, uh, is trying to turn this place into a recruiting place, they're making a big mistake. You are going home. And we're not going to be transferring you at all. That's not our job. And where are you we're back? Are you back in? You're not back in your own home now, though. No, no, no. Okay. okay. Uh, 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 by the way, when, when the nurse was giving out to me, in the, the place where I was they wanted to get rid of me, my blood pressure went from 110 to 186. And I had to be brought immediately to the CUH, and there was a heart specialist waiting for me. And they kept me up there for about 10 days. And I couldn't find... I, did, oh, no. and okay. I couldn't find nicer people okay. in every way. And, um, and you, do you, you describe yourself as waiting to die. Well, I'm waiting to die now because I'm in debate for five and a half years. Here, I'm looking at the ceiling. I was only out of it once when I was going bleeding to death through the nose because I'm on Warfarin in January, just gone. And do you have anyone visit or family or anything like that? No, because they put me so far away. If you stand at your lighthouse and look straight across the Blackwater River, that's uh, County Water, that's called Monetary, that's where I'm from. Okay. But I'm, I'm in Limerick now, and uh, I was uh, staying here, and I got a bed pain in my chest at 4 o'clock in the evening, and they gave me a spoon of Gaviscon. I had a pain down my left shoulder, down the side of the, the, the left jaw, because I was all trained in paramedics, and I okay. was also trained in first aid. Right. So I knew it was a heart attack. It was the same as if I was being crushed between two transit vans, one at the front of my chest, one at the back. 
and the pain down my left there and, and along the juggler vein and left hand side. I knew it was, and I told him, and I told him at four o'clock. He gave me spoons together, John, and that went on and that went on until half past one in the morning. That's a long time from four in the evening to half past one in the morning. And they thought we were, we're not going into it anymore. And the staff in the morning, they come in at eight o'clock, they can take care of you. Okay, okay. And I dialed All 999 right. and I told the girls what was going wrong. And I had a doctor to me in eight minutes and a ambulance. And was it a heart attack? Yeah. Okay. It was. Okay, okay. It was a heart attack. All right, okay. And I, I was brought down. Got it. And there, there was four arteries blocked, one thirty percent, two fifties percent, and a 70. Right. Okay. They put stents in the two fifties, and I was left home, and I felt good, and I was able to fly around in a wheelchair, but I was frightened about the 70 percent and I told my own doctor I'd like to go back and get that sorted. I know, I know, but Marty, 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 I'm going to have to stop. Um, I want to be respectful for you because you're old, you're I, much older than me and I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody, but no. I don't I, I don't have more time at this stage, you know. I think we've could, got, could, you, could you give me two minutes more? Marty. They, they left me and I suffered a second heart attack and I was given up for this and there was, I had blood clots in the lungs, and they were coming out my mouth, and they were as big as tomatoes. And they told me, your heart is finished forevermore. Well, it's not, and, and you're, there's still a lot of fuel in the tank, and you're well able to talk, so that's a good indicator of maybe... Well, they told me the yeah. one thing, I had great lungs. <laughs> and I, honest to God, the, the, the specialist good. told me that you, you had purple lungs. And Neil, I had been a top athlete. I used to run 140 miles, and I could row boat <laughs> from West Watford to Belly Cotton, 14 hours rowing the whole time. All right, all right. And okay. they thought, but, all no, right. but listen. Marty, Marty, I'm, you're, you're breaking my heart. Yours is better than mine right no, now. I'll every to... every word that I'm telling right. you, or the one question I want to all know, right. why did Hikwa not answer the two calls and left the place that they could be a fire, two I know. people born yeah. to a cinder like the stardust in Dublin. All right, Marty, I have to go. Marty, now I have to go. I really do. It's, uh, I'm going to end up on a hospital bed myself. Go on. I enjoyed you all thank the week you, and you, I, you. I listened into every with cheers. But every word I have told you is the gospel truth. Right to be, Marty. Mind yourself. Thank you so much. Look after yourself, please. And regards to you and all your family and friends back in East Cork. Talk to Neil Prinderville now. 1851 Red FM. Marty, Marty, Marty. Everybody loves you, my friend. Get Marty in for the fortnight when you're away, says Mark. Um, Marty was hilarious. Come <laughs> Can we have a Marty party? Uh, sorry now, Neil, that poor man. I believe him 100%. This is a cover-up after cover-up after cover-up, whatever way we look at it. He's an educated man with a voice. He's not afraid. Surely there should be more inquiries. Uh, fair play to you for giving Marty time to chat. He's obviously uh, lonely and he seems like such a sweet man. Thank you for being so respectful to him, says Declan. Not everybody says that, actually. Here is Neil getting frustrated with a caller. Now, imagine being a nurse and having tens of patients to look after and their families who are on edge because their relative is ill. Imagine what it's like for nurses. Um, I not, no, I wasn't getting frustrated. I just have to keep the show on the road. Um, I just don't think that Marty needed it all to ever come up for air. 
Like, uh, I just, like, you can only give as much time to a particular story. And this story was going on in different lines and different roads and uh, different directions. At some stage, you have to say, okay, that's, that's, that's good. Now we need to move on. So I wasn't being disrespectful or frustrated. I think I just wanted an opportunity to get in at some stage. But would I sit down with Marty for an hour and listen to him talk? Absolutely, I would. Would we chat away for an afternoon? I would like to think so. Uh, fair play, Marty. Thanks for your contribution. Uh, for all of the business, text 0868-104-106. Um, now, just one or two texts here ahead of uh, one or two calls. I find it absolutely disgusting that people are attacking frontline workers. If those whiners would like to join us on the front line, uh, we would see how smart they are then. The suicides, alcoholism, family breakups, uh, and the frontline workers having to go through austerity was horrific, but we keep on going. Show some respect, people, says John. I think he's referring to suicide, alcoholism, and family breakups from those working on the front line, to be honest with you. I'm glad to see this being highlighted. My father-in-law was in CUH uh, for two weeks, four years ago, it was a nightmare. We were glad he was too sick to realise the carry-on. But it was dreadful for his wife and for us to have to deal with it. There was no excuse for this and the staff were appalling. I've had plenty of good experiences with the CUH, but not geriatric areas. Um, I honestly had a very good experience in the CUH and the Mercy. The nurses were fantastic. I felt very, very safe and looked after. I stayed there for five days. My friend was in COH for almost a week for a bad infection, was treated amazingly. All of the care assistants, the nurses and the doctors were amazing. There were two Indian nurses in the emergency department and they were amazing. They were so kind and sweet. It was never suggested for a moment that there weren't huge areas of the hospital that were doing good work. I mean, that's that's a gimme, right? Okay. We were talking about care of the elderly. I'm 28 years of age. I'm a qualified nurse. I decided a year ago to do farming instead. I have a better quality of life now. No more stress. There was way too much expected from nurses, from the organizing we do for the day ahead and then dealing with emergencies in between. Unless you work in the environment, no one will ever understand it. It seems the nurses are expected to clean up and feed patients, give them their medicines all of the time. What about the relatives? Why can't they come in and sit with them? The care assistants can walk out at 8 p.m. and the nurses are there to hold the can for the night shift. They also need to have all of this paperwork up to date from Mary, who at 28 years of age is now a retired staff nurse. I'm not going to get through everything, guys. In fact, it's pretty much the tip of the iceberg, I can tell you that. But I wonder if there's any political motivation to look into uh, what we've been discussing for the past three or four days. Is there need for change? Is there a need for an investigation? Is it about money or is it about management and admin? Is it about how... Uh, funds and staffing is distributed around, say, for instance, the CUH. All of those questions for Pat Buckley, Sinn Féin TD, who, who is attempting to raise the matter with the health minister. Pat, good morning. Good morning, Nina. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a crap phone line, Pat. Can you move around? I'm actually en route to the convention centre for 12pm. Can you hear me now? Yeah, it's not great, but so I'll, ke- I'll keep it short. Have, have you heard much of what was discussed, the stories from Absolutely. members? Yeah, you have? Yeah, I have. And I have to say, there's an old saying in my job that, you know, you listen to two sides of the story and then you listen to the truth. Yeah. And we have to be mindful of uh, patients, but also the people that work there. But I was, you know, it was, I was sick of my stomach to hear some of the witnesses' um, testimonies and stuff. And I did manage to raise this Tuesday night with the health minister, but he wasn't aware of what was going on. So I've written to Minister Donnelly and Minister Mary Buckler 
can they come aware of it? I've asked them to have an investigation into the ongoings of it. And I was listening to you just there about, um, you know, what is it? Is the people overworked? But it's complete, it's complete denial by the hospital where the CUH manager says the geriatric service provided by CUH is of the highest calibre extraordinary staff and exceptional people. There is nothing wrong, not even a small bit wrong in there, he says. Yeah, and, and this is the crux. I mean, in my, I suppose my last uh, spell as mental health person, you get the same um, standards emails back and I think you were lucky to actually get more than a couple of lines of an email. But I think you have to listen to all sides of the story, Tony. And it is, it, it, it's been like this for years. It's absolutely underfunding, understaffing, and no, no proper care plans put in place because they don't have resources, and they're not going to affect the data. They don't have enough staff to look after people. They claim to have the best, which I don't believe, because we wouldn't have these problems. We wouldn't have people coming out and getting testimonies, and that's why I've asked for a concise, independent investigation into this because it seems to be systemic across a lot of sectors. I mean, geriatric is a very, very, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm wondering, is it the hardest part of the hospital to work in? Because it it needs, those in there need the most care, and and not just health care, but also compassion and time spent with them. And it can be, I mean, imagine it must be a very physical job as well, you know, because you're literally talking about people who can't move for themselves, can't feed themselves, can't look after themselves many times. And, and like, are, are the... Are they burnt out? Like, do they? Are, is there I, I some do, of them I in there see, that just? I do get that sense. I do get that sense. But there's other worrying points that were made in your show over the couple of days. I mean, a basic standard, bog standard handrail inside the show unit. I mean, that's not good enough. I mean, there should be proper seating facilities there. Um, one of your witnesses spoken about how the place was clean, where the mop was dragged on the floor, and then proceeded to put that into a shower tray. You wouldn't do that in a dog's home, and that's. That's my worry, Patrick. If we're, if we're lucky enough, some of my, uh, well, my own mother's still alive, my in-laws are still alive. But if you thought that your parents or in-laws were going to be treated that way, when you expect it from the outdoor, that this perception that everything was absolutely spot on, and it's not. But yeah, but it ca- it can, they all can't be. They all can't be. What? Somebody should be able to answer the question as to why. It's not running the way it should be running. And that's down to three of the most main factors here. Understaffing, which comes from underfunding, and your management have to have, what we would say, the cojones, to stand up and say to their managers, because this is where the problem is within the HSE is manager top heavy, they say, this is not working, I'm concerned, make your complaint, and it should be active with, but it's not been active with. I've seen it, I'm dealing with protected disclosures. I will send you on some emails of them, pictures of people, and you would say, you wouldn't even believe they were human beings when you see the photographs. And I've raised it with... Is these photographs of elderly people, elderly people is yes, it? Elderly, okay. elderly people, and I've, it's just been totally dismissed uh, in the doll chamber. I've constantly tried to raise it through media, and people seem to be very afraid of it, because it's absolutely mind-blowing, sickening... Um, but, no, but I am just, see, because I'm conscious then, if they say to me that staff in the CUH are being verbally abused by visitors and family members because we've shared this, what, what the CEO of, this, of the CUH calls unbalanced coverage. Um, and also he's, he's saying that... It goes back to me what I said to you. 
you listen to the two sides of the story and then you have to get the truth. And that's what I want to do. I listen to both sides. Well, people, people have to be to entitled to tell their story. And, and course, many, many yeah, people are saying, I'm so glad that you started this topic because I've often wondered, was I alone? And now they know that there are others with similar stories. Well, Neil, how many times have I been on your radio show and I'll say it, I'll say it over and over again. Two of the most difficult things to do in this country is tell the truth and help people. Whatever is wrong with the system in this country, that is where the breaking of everything is starting from. You're punished for telling the truth, you'll be punished for helping the people, and God forbid that you put the two of those together to make a case to improve something, you'll be discussed here first. Okay, okay, okay. So you are going to continue to see if you can shed some light on this and make change. I'm hoping to meet with one or, two, one or even two of the ministers within the next 10 minutes to say, look, I gave it a letter, what's the story, what's happening, I need to know, I need to let the people know, and we take it from there. But okay. as I said, I'm a dog with a bone. Okay, thanks, Pat. We'll come back again on this then in the not-so-distant future, hopefully on, on a better phone line. Pat Buckley, Sinn Féin TD. Um, it's terrible to hear some such shocking stories about nurses in the CUH, particularly the care of our elderly. I was admitted to hospital last July, double fracture to my spine, trolley two days, two nurses looking after 25 of us. Two nurses, 25 patients. My God. We were all on trolleys. I was speaking to the nurse who was looking after me and she said she was looking after 13 of us all together that day. The other nurse was looking after 12. No wonder staff morale is rock bottom. I was there for a week before they found the two fractures in my spine at all. I'm a home help for 10 years. We do a lot more than home helps did years ago. We do a lot of jobs nurses do now. Uh, I agree that there are a lot of great nurses, but uh, with that being said, there are a lot of public health nurses who don't give a hoot. It's hard to explain what goes on inside the hospitals. I hope people are aware that a lot of care assistants like myself do try our hardest to give elderly people a good quality of life in their own homes. Uh, I agree with everything that was said by your callers who were on the air. I sent a text to you at the time when my mother died. You read it out. Hearing those ladies on with you brought back a lot of bad memories of my mother's time in the CUH. There are tears in my eyes now as I text. And to think nothing has changed in a year and a half is awful. I just want to add that my brother-in-law is in the care of the South Infirmary as a cancer patient. He has stayed there a few times He's also an outpatient. What a difference there is between the CUH and the South Infirmary. The staff are so nice, nothing is too much trouble for them. It's an old hospital, but it is spotless. Uh, back after the break. The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 1850-104-106. Uh, morale within from talking to healthcare workers uh, like myself is at an all-time low. When I started a long time ago, we had three or four student nurses, four or five nurses for 20 patients, three care assistants and a cleaner on the wards at all time not to mention all of the kitchen staff. The nurse-to-patient ratio was about four patients to one nurse. I was in, that was some time back. When staff were on holidays, maternity leave or sick leave, they were always replaced. Now maternity leave is never replaced, and the patient-nurse ratios are shocking. Nurses and care assistants worked so well together uh, a long time ago. Then the doctor numbers started reducing and the nurses took on some of the doctor's duties. Today, a nurse could spend a lot of their time just doing drug rounds and filling out forms in a day's work, says Stephen. I think you've very much catalogued uh, how things have changed over the years and not for the better. Um, my late mother was nil by mouth after surgery in the Mercy. I asked a nurse for an ice cube to soothe her cracked lips at the time. 
Four and a half hours later, I went and got it myself. After that, I did everything I could for her myself. The same nurse used to turn down her oxygen as punishment. I sorted that out quickly. It's not just the CUH that had this kind of carry-on, says Paul. Ah, yes, and yet again, the nurse is getting a bashing. Every patient has a journey and the right to express it. But nurses are gagged. Um, No, they're not. I've read out every single text that I see from a nurse. I'm horrified to see these patient stories. None of us get into the profession to treat people badly as nurses. It's exhausting emotionally and physically. Instead of blaming the nurses and just accepting the conditions are poor or stating why not just get more nurses on shift, which is impossible, why aren't we not looking at management, pay scales, retention, the amount of those of us leaving the profession and the ridiculous amounts of paperwork that we have to fill out per patient. Also, what is the average age of a nurse and why? I do accept that not all nurses do the job appropriately and deliver patient-centered care, but again, this is the hospital management's problem to weed these people out and deal with the situation. Well, thank you, nurse, but that's never going to happen when you get a response like the one that I got from the CUH where there is no problem. There is no problem where it is nothing more than uncorroborated and in many cases inaccurate stories. Yeah. Where the geriatric services of the highest caliber led by extraordinary staff and exceptional people. Not one iota of acknowledgement that there might be some room for improvement. Lines to stay open at one 850 Text 0868-104-106. Very good friend of the program, Vicky, has a fire sale starting in uh, Woolen Mills in Douglas tomorrow. The two boutiques, It's So Me and Pure, from Douglas Village Shopping Centre. Lots and lots of stock must go. And they asked me to give them a shout out. That's tomorrow and um, probably right across the weekend in Douglas Woolen Mills. All right, mind where you park in there. I saw a couple of people again this morning early hanging around in there, standing at their motor car. I can only assume the misfortunes were clamped. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.